1: What's up, Two Tongues World? Chris coming at you again with another solo episode today. I'm taking a day off work today, so <clears throat> I'm going to spend a little bit of time recording. I'm glad I am off because this is a um, this is a doozy. This one, this one is a doozy, I think. So <clears throat> today, today, we're going to do the first of a three part series on postmodernism. Why? because I don't understand it, because it keeps coming up, and I don't understand it. So I'm doing the hard thing, which is something that I continue to to, uh, to suggest uh, that's good for, for all of us, do the hard thing. So I'm, I'm getting into it. I am getting into it. Um, a couple of things. So we talked about postmodernism before. It's a type of a kind of a, well, a modern form of philosophy that started in the, oh boy, probably like the 40s. Um, but mostly it was, um, at its height in the sixties and seventies. And a lot of the philosophers that uh, come up when we talk about postmodernism are French, pretty much all of them French. Um, so, so a bunch of, bunch of French philosophers writing in the sixties and seventies. I don't have to tell you guys what the world was like in the sixties and seventies. Uh, it was, um, you know, obviously a really important transitionary period in American history. Um, that's the birth of the um, psychedelic revolution, rock and roll, all the best cars that were, were built there in the 60s and 70s. So was an interesting time, interesting politically, interesting socially. Um, <clears throat> and postmodernism came, came out of this, uh, this time. So when we talked about it before, it came up in the context of uh, Jordan Peterson being um, well, against it, but, you know, for for lack of a better word, against it. Um, he, so just to refresh your memory, what Jordan would say about postmodernism is that it's tied to um, it's tied to communism really, really closely. And um, and it supposes a view of the world that's all about power and power struggles. And the power struggles are being carried out between groups of people rather than between individuals. And so the kind of overarching narrative that Jordan takes such a critique of is the idea that this philosophy asks you to see everything that happens in the world as group struggles, as a dynamic of, of power between multiple groups. And that is the driving force and the answer to all of life's questions. It's like everything somehow becomes political, Uh, Everything somehow um, becomes focused on on the group and the individual gets lost in the mix. So that was a big sticking point for Jordan. It's like, look, we all know what happens when we get get into a crowd. You know, Kyle and I talked about this thought experiment. uh, I don't know that it's ever happened, but it probably has. That, uh, you, you know, you could be, let's say, at a concert venue with thousands and thousands of people. And somebody can see somebody, let's say, slip and fall and fall into a pond or a lake or something and they're drowning. And because you've got a thousand or thousands of people standing around, you know, watching, there's this um, there's this thing that happens with responsibility where people just kind of think, oh, somebody will help. And so you just sort of pass the responsibility psychologically from yourself, even though you feel like you should do something because, you know, somebody else is going to do it. But everybody thinks that way. So nobody helps the drowning person and they just drown and die while everybody stands around looking at them waiting for someone to do something. So there's, this is an example of when we act as a group, um, unusual things happen, things that we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to happen. It's like nobody's driving the car exactly. The car's, the car's driving, but nobody's in charge of it. Like this is what happens when we, when we think as a group this is the kind of risk we run. I'm not saying that that always happens, but this is the sort of risk we run. Kyle and I also have brought up an example before where collectivism seems to have seems to have some kind of a value that's hard to pin down. And the example has to do with um, a jar full of jelly beans. And you go around and you ask, you know, a thousand people to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. And everybody has different answers, and they're wildly different. You know, Some people say a couple hundred, some people say tens of thousands. And the thing is, if you go and you ask enough individual people, the average of the guesses, it, it gets narrower and narrower honing in on the actual number of jelly beans. So they, I think they asked 100 people in this example that I'm referring to, or maybe something like that, and they were within a couple, uh, literally within ten. Of the correct number of jelly beans by the average number of guesses, so that's amazing. It's really hard to understand. It's really hard. it's really I mean it's, it's it's borderline magical that 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 happens. But there's the other side of the coin that as a group somehow we're more accurate, right? Somehow as a group we're more accurate than we are individually, and like to an eerie degree. So it's like you can make an argument that uh, that working together as a group and s- subduing the individual, that that's actually where the important things happen. Um, history kind of paints that picture. We pretend like all the most important things that happen in the world are large-scale, grand, political, uh, and social changes. And that sort of disregards the fact that those changes that, that kind of happen on the, lar- on the large scale, they started with individuals. There just was enough individuals doing it that it became a large-scale movement So so there's definitely arguments on both sides of the coin about whether a group identity is should be paramount, should be the the level that we're concerned about. Um, But here in America, we have a We have a history. We have a tradition of honoring the individual, individual rights. You know, the the thinking about the, the soul is sacred and the individual is sacred. And so it makes it very difficult to put that aside in favor of a group identity. And then you can think about all of the things that Jordan will bring up about where group identity has gone wrong in the 20th century to the nth degree. You know, where things have gone wrong so bad that we can't risk ever allowing that to happen again. And Jordan will pin that down on group identity just the same. These are things like, you know, what happened in uh, Nazi Germany, what happened in the Cultural Revolution in Communist China, what happened in the in Communist so- Soviet Union under, under uh, Stalin, let's say. So, this is all about group identity. It's all about pitting groups against one another, and in those examples, you basically have um, a manipulation going on where the dictator is sort of pinning p- it's his people against one another to s- sustain his own position and, and power. And you can see that sort of thing happening in American politics. You know, maybe <laughs> you know maybe that's been going on for a very long time, but it's certainly going on now. So here's the argument. This is where the postmodern argument comes in. And if we're going to take this part of the postmodern argument as our starting point, um, we're, we're basically going to be starting with a guy named Michel Foucault. So that was a name that I heard tossed around um, before. Uh, I just didn't, never understood what the postmodernists exactly believed. That summary that I've provided to you already is basically the gist of what I had. Now, when Kyle and I talked about this, we tried a little bit, but we hadn't really got into the philosophy. So how far are you going to get? You know, we we didn't get very far, but we definitely talked about some things that they, that the postmodernists talk about. They talk about things, um, like structuralism, post-structuralism, deconstruction, uh, these are words that come out of postmodernism and we'll talk about them a little bit, uh, today. Um, and, uh, and so, what those concepts boil down to is the ways in which power, the ways in which power we can see power working in society, where that power comes from, who's pulling the strings. And it gets really muddy and interesting, especially when we start talking about language, because what Foucault was going to say is that culture is also a power dynamic and it's working on us all the time. And, uh, and we don't, it's like invisible to us because we're born into it. It's like a foregone conclusion. We never think about the culture, but that there are ways in which the culture is holding certain people down, let's say, and raising certain people up. So you can see how when we start talking about that, that you can see like social, like the like the seeds of the social justice movement and things that we're seeing today that are there ready to come out of this postmodernism. But the, but the point that Foucault is making is a in, more interesting one. And this is one, like I said, that Kyle and I talked about to do with language. It's like, look, we're sort of born into this language as well. And this is the only way that we can communicate. It's the only way we can get the thoughts out of our, out of our unconscious and into the world. Because we have these restrictions with words and meaning that that we didn't come up with. We inherited it. It's like there's a lot of things... Baggage that comes along with language that we're sort of—it's uh, sort of invisible to us—and that there are th- that there are things that come about and how we communicate with each other and the meaning that that we kind of mutually agree on—that's influenced by the limitations of language and the assumptions in language. So it's it's like this is something that Kyle and I talked about if, if, when we were talking about Jordan Peterson and lots of other things. That I actually sort of agree with. It, like, it has to do with when I come up with a word, and I'm trying to, and I'm trying to convince you, let's say, that that word reflects something in the world, like a table or a dog or something. like I'm the first person to come up with this word, and I want you to believe that it's referencing this thing out there in reality. And what I don't take into consideration when I do that is the fact that this other conscious creature who's looking at this reference, this object, a table or a dog, let's say, that their perception is not the same as mine, that their history is not the same as mine. The connotations that they have to a dog are not the same as mine. So arbitrarily using this word dog that we both sort of agree means this thing, it actually doesn't mean the same thing to me as it does to him or her. So we're assuming that we're, we're communicating, that we're on the same page using these symbols for language, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're fooling ourselves that that's what we're doing, and maybe we're living in some sort of fake, uh, illusory type of type of world that way, um, in ways that we don't understand. And I think that's interesting, and I think there might be something to that because it it's connected to this idea that Kyle and I talk about sometimes, that we don't know anything beyond our subjective experience of the world. We don't know anything beyond our perceptions. So when we look out at the world, we see the things we see. We have no choice but to believe that that's what they are or pretty close to what they are. But we have no way of knowing really how much of an illusion our perceptions are. And if when we look out at the world, what we're seeing is really nothing at all, like what's really there. And this is the idea about objective reality. Like we have no idea what that is. We only ever experience it through our subjective experience. We only ever experience it through our, you know, through our senses and, uh, that, that they're not perfect. So there's a mystery there. And this seems to be what Foucault's pointing out. It's like, look, I can use a word, but does it really describe the thing behind the word? If that thing is objective reality and, you know, you want to Put a, put a wrench in the cogs just a little bit deeper going down the mystic route that I like to go down you can say that uh, that what's behind every perception is the sort of the supreme mystery what's behind every perception whether it's a dog or a table or the cosmos doesn't matter what's behind every one of those things is the same thing it's the Terminator 2 liquid metal substance that I keep referring to in metaphor it's pure potentiality and it's the same thing it's the potential to become anything. It's the substance of God, whatever that is. And behind every perception is that. Well, if that's the case, then every, every word I come up with is false. <clears throat> every perception I have is false, right? So when Jordan's talking about our perceptions being false and shining some light on the mystery of matter and the mystery of existence, I think Foucault is doing the same thing when he's examining language. He's shining a light on the same thing, this weird, hard to define, you know, substance behind our ideas, our notions, our words. That might actually be some mystery like that, like I was just describing. Some Terminator Two substance, like behind every idea or every concept is God somehow. It's potential somehow. Like a word has the potential to have a meaning, and if we agree, then it does. But in reality, that word is meaningless, or perhaps it means everything, because what it references is some mystery behind our perceptions that's infinite. Something like that. So I really do think that, uh, that Foucault and, and Jordan are talking kind of on, the same, on the same, uh, along the same lines here, which is interesting. Um, okay, so let's put that monologue aside for a second. I want to talk a little bit about Foucault now that we've got there. So Foucault was born in 1926. That was a a really a really nice time in a, a kind of the, the Western world. Right before it was the calm before the storm, though. So the Roaring Twenties, you guys may remember, that's what we called them. 1929 comes the stock market collapse. Everything sort of changes. So Foucault was born in the prosperity, the just dramatic prosperity right before the stock market crash of 29. He dies in 1984. So. Um, see so you, you, you kind of get the picture of what this guy lived through. Kind of a lot, kind of a lot. You know, the Second World War, uh, the Great Depression, um, and all of the political change that happened in the 60s and 70s, really all the way up to the modern era in the 80s. He's known as a political activist and a literary critic. So let me just pause there for a second. So with Michel Foucault, we have a philosopher, You guys know what I mean. The same kind of people we were talking about when we were talking about Plato and uh, Descartes and um, Heidegger and all these other people. Foucault is going to consider himself one of these intellectuals that falls into this tradition of people that are enlightening, are are adding to this process of enlightening the human race, the philosophers, the lovers of wisdom. That's what philosophy means. Fia Sophia, the love of wisdom. That's who Foucault is supposed to be but he's remembered as a political activist and a literary critic. That's interesting. So when ever in human history have you had a philosopher, one of these deep thinkers that's that's trying to bring truth to to, uh, human experience, when have you ever known one of those people to be remembered, not for the ideas that he brought to the table, but for his influence politically, his influence politically? influence politically, you know? Um, There's all sorts of philosophers that were political philosophers. Um, We don't have to go down that road necessarily. Um, But would you consider Foucault one of them? It's hard to, it's hard to answer that question. He's also a literary critic, and this is important because what the hell does that mean? All right, so we're dealing with something right now in in the United States, critical race theory. This is something that is coming up in the dialogue. We're we're seeing a lot of resistance to that being introduced into schools. I happen to agree wholeheartedly with the resistance to the idea, but this is kind of where it, this is kind of where it goes back to. A literary critic is somebody who reads important works of literature, uh, important important contributions to the culture. You know, great books like 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 Moby Dick and Jane Eyre and Animal Farm and you know great books. They read those things and they pick them apart and they point out where the, there were assumptions that were wrong, where there were, um, you know, where there were, uh, misunderstandings that took us down the wrong path. They pick apart these great works, um, for, uh, for many reasons. First of all, it's to point out ways in which our culture was influenced that were wrong, that was an error. It's like we have to go back to these great works that influenced our culture and point out where we went wrong. So you've got these people in retrospect with 2020 hindsight glasses going back into these great works of art and criticizing them. And there's all sorts of reasons why they think this is a good idea. And I'm trying to paint that picture for you. It's like if we can find out where the culture has gone wrong and why... Why were we influenced to believe this way? Why, you know, where did this idea come from? Um, you know, the way that we get to the bottom of that, or one one way which we can, is by critiquing them. So we critique the Bible. So we critique Homer. So we critique you know, the Western tradition. So we can critique our own language. We, could, we can critique all of that and try to figure out where all the problems are there that we can fix, that we can, that we can identify to get us on the right track to help us moving in the right direction. And what's interesting about that is you have to have an idea of what the right direction is to do that kind of criticism, right? It's not blind. It's not objective at all. You have to have an agenda to do that. You're going to go back into the Bible. You're going to go back into these great works of of culture, let's say. You're going to critique them. How are you going to do that? You're going to do that from the cultural context in which those books came, are you going to go back to the time in which they were written and put yourself in the head in the cultural space of the people that lived there? No, that's pretty goddamn impossible. But they're going to do that anyway. They're going to do that in this forward-thinking way, in this arrogant way. And I think this is where Jordan Peterson's criticism comes in. You have to have something to critique. So what are you going in? What are you going into? You know, the Iliad or the Odyssey, looking to critique. And this is what we see with critical race theory today. We're going in there and looking for racism wherever they can find it to point it out and to and to swag, wag its finger at the at the culture. You know, <clears throat> it's the kind of thing I'm talking about. So Foucault's a philosopher, but a political activist and a literary critic. And this is where he's focusing his great mental ability. This is where he's focusing his. His interest in contributing to the culture, he's his interest is to make a political difference, and to to tear apart the culture to find those those th- components of it that are wrong that need to be fixed, or those new opportunities that let's say were hidden from us by, you know, by tradition, something like that. Shake things up, break break walls down, find ways of of. Releasing potential, find ways of opening doors and windows, you know, find ways of creating something new, um, where we, where we were only finding brick walls and closed doors, something like that. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an inspiring philosophy. There's a way of looking at postmodernism that's like that. And, um, that's where, that's where so much of the appeal comes from. And it's also where so much of the arrogance is. And you'll see as we start reading it what I mean. Um, all right, so there's a little bit here in uh, Wikipedia that I wanted to bring up because Wikipedia talks about Foucault. I'll read you the quote. It says, Foucault's theories primarily address the relationship between power and knowledge and how they are used to form uh, as a form of social control through societal institutions. So that's one way of summing up Foucault's brand of postmodernism, it's it's a theory that addresses the relationship between uh, of power and knowledge. So I know that's all as clear as mud right now, but we'll get there. And how that's used through societal institutions, that's through society at large, through our culture and our society to control the citizens of the society. Um, I want to point out that it's not exactly clear. When we're talking about government, maybe it's different, but when we're talking about society, it's not exactly clear who's pulling the strings. So if society is structured in a way that it's controlling the people, it's not exactly clear that there's a dictator, that there's somebody who's the ruler of society that's making those decisions. Rather, it seems like it's, it's... a collective thing that developed over a long time. So across all sorts of different people living and dead, across all sorts of different cultures over a long stretch of time, that this is how society developed. And the people pulling the strings aren't some in-charge person or even any particular group. It's the dynamics of all of those individual decisions that were made and all of the individual interactions with those people over generations. That seems to be what's pulling the strings, not some... Power-hungry dictator, but that's also how, how Foucault takes it, which I don't agree with. Another thing that Wikipedia says about uh, Foucault is that he was heavily influenced by Nietzsche. So I have to point out: so was Jordan Peterson, so was Carl Jung. You know, there's so many so many important thinkers that were influenced by Nietzsche, where Nietzsche is kind of one of their one of their most important influences. And you've got someone like Foucault, who is very um, um, much—he's very much sensitive to kind of communism and socialism and and, um, group dynamics. Very much, sort of in favor of that uh, type of thinking. And you've got somebody like Jordan Peterson, who's could not be any any more different. Who sees huge risks and concerns with groupthink and group dynamics, who thinks that taking robbing people of their individual agency is kind of the greatest sin. Like we need to be in we need to be master of ourselves, right? You know, that's important to us. And throwing us into a group and taking away our group identity has all sorts of like red flags and danger signs and warning signs flashing off over Jordan's head, where Foucault is more or less thinking that that that's good that that's nature, so both men influenced heavily by Nietzsche, coming out on very different sides of the spectrum and i I point that out for the obvious reason, but also because there is going back to my earlier point, there is a connection between the way that Foucault talks about language and the way the way that jordan and and young talk about um talk about reality, talk about God, you know. And Jordan's a little bit more careful with doing that. Um, so this connection with Nietzsche, I think comes from, I think comes from a description that Nietzsche made, and I can't remember what what book this was in. But he makes a distinction between the gods Apollo in, in ancient Greece and Dionysus, and uh, a way of being that he calls um, Apollonian, like the way that Apollo. What Apollo represented, could you could think of that as a way of being, as a way of life, and then you could think about Dionysus. That was, I mean, if you remember, Dionysus is the we talked about him many times, but he's the god of the vine, he's the god of drunkenness and partying and frivolity and chaos. That, that there's another way of being a human being that's Dionysian. It's something like that. And so that there's this Ap- uh, Apollonian and Dionysian type of impulses that are going on in a human being all the time that are competing with each other. And this is easy to explain. You, you already know what this means. Think about that part of yourself that's always very rational, very cautious, that that likes order, that likes things to be a certain way, that likes to you know be able to rely on certain things you know like that the sun is going to rise rise in the morning that they can rely on their friends and family that stability and order are important there's that part of our of our psyche that's you might say the higher order part that's the human part maybe and then you've got the dionysian part that's irrational that's the animal part of us that's the part of us that's that's in tune with our uh, instincts and desires in our bodies, you know. The, again, Dionysius was the god of of the vine, and drunkenness. It's the part of our body that is, uh, you know, that is attuned to our to the world around us and to our instincts. It's that sort of thing. The part of you that can take over, you know, when you feel lustful or angry, that part of you, the part of you that subdues your rational part. Dionysus is the part that subdues Apollo, but both of those. Both of those things are going on at the same time, order and chaos, Apollo and Dionysus, both of those things going on in our psyches all the time, and they sort of struggle with one another, and you know that because it happens all the time. You know, I've been talking about fasting, and I was describing this to my mom just yesterday in exactly the same way. She's like, why are you doing these long fasts, like three days with no food? Are you going 48 hours in between meals, like on a regular basis, What?" What are you doing that for? What are you hoping to gain from that? And I was like, you know, I hadn't really asked myself that question. But I'm like, you know what? Maybe what I'm doing is challenging myself in a, in a, like an exercise of discipline. And what it is is what it is is trying to see if my Apollo can defeat my Dionysus, right? If I'm not eating, what's more primal than that? When you're hungry, wanting to eat, you know, what's more, what's more pressing than that? So there's like this animal part of me that I know is there that's that's always struggling against the higher order part of myself that's trying to subdue those those animal instincts. And what I'm doing is putting myself in a situation where I'm starving, literally, and my body wants to eat. And I look at myself internally and I say, No, no. I'm not doing that, you know for any for any particular reason i'm not i'm not you know it's not a psychological condition i'm not anorexic i'm doing that you know in a, in a structured way on purpose you know for that particular reason so that i can so that i can pit apollo against dionysus within my own soul and see if i can come out on top <laughs> something like that and i am serious um you know, i think it's the same reason why people like joe rogan and um and uh uh, all those crazy, all those crazy athletes that, that he's got on the, the, the podcast, um, how, why they set themselves such difficult challenges. I think it's something like that. So we all have this battle going on and it is, you could say, some kind of a power dynamic, a struggle within our soul um, for order over chaos, or chaos over order all the time. And it's interesting because Jordan Peterson talks about that so much in Maps of Meaning, chaos and order and the balance and the harmony and why that's important and in all those sorts of ways. I don't have to recap for you now. So there is a way of seeing that, that our lives are like that internally, that there's some sort of a power struggle going on like that. Foucault read that from Nietzsche and he was like, oh, yeah, and that resonated with him. He's like, that's exactly what my life is like. And when you have that epiphany, that moment of epiphany, which foucault had when he was reading nietzsche you you it's hard to explain you were impressed with this truth with this eureka moment this truth that comes out of nowhere and punches you in the face but it's it's like it was always there it was always there and when you notice it it's and it's such a powerful feeling that one of the things you want to do and i have been guilty of this for sure one of the things you want to do is you want to extend the power of that truth as much as you possibly can. You're like, "Oh, I have I have found this hard-earned piece of knowledge and and it's it makes so much sense. I wonder how far I can take it." So you push the boundaries of it. And to understand that you have this struggle in your own soul between Apollo and Dionysus, between your, you know, rational and your irrational like impulses, let's say. When you, when you realize that there's a struggle going on, and then maybe you see that in other ways, like you see that struggling struggle between individuals for one reason or another, or you experience a war, like the Second World War, like Foucault lived through, and you see the power dynamics between nations. Or, remember, Foucault lived through the Depression as well. Maybe you see the power dynamics of the market, of the free market, you see, you see the worst possible outcomes of that. You start seeing those things that you know from Nietzsche are are happening inside you. You start seeing them happen all around in all these dramatic ways. Somebody like Foucault, living through that part of of Western history, you know, it, it's you can understand why he would bring this power struggle dynamic. He would impose that on the whole world. He would sh- see how far he can take it because he saw the truth of it within himself. It resonated with him in this powerful way. And he's seeing all this crazy shit happening in the world that he thinks is also uh, an illustration of the same kind of conflict that he knows is happening in his own goddamn soul. And he looks out and he sees it happening in the Second World War. I mean, you can understand, to a certain degree, why Foucault would take this power dynamic idea to the extreme. But what I want to point out here is that Foucault sees power dynamics as a struggle, as a life-and-death conflict. So power dynamics are a life-and-death conflict. Even this conflict within your soul that Nietzsche points out between order and chaos, and even that, one side has to win. It's life or death. One side has to win. This is how Foucault sees it. And hard to blame him for that. Somebody had to win the Second World War, right? Right? Jordan Peterson, on the other hand, does not see power dynamics as a life-and-death struggle where one side has to win. Jordan Peterson sees power dynamics as a dance, as a harmony and a balance that's struck between these forces that are competing. Um, something comes to my mind. Uh, yeah, I don't know if anybody shoots, if anybody goes to the range and shoots or wants to learn how to shoot a pistol or, or, or you know whatever it is, but one of the things I learned doing that uh, which is interesting is when you're holding a pistol and you're aiming, there's all sorts of things you have to be aware of and you have to f- fight against, including um, the most obvious one is preparing for the recoil or preparing for the loud noise that you know is coming. So there's something that you're doing where you're almost pulling back you're almost re- you're almost expecting the recoil you're, you're you're anticipating what's going to happen. And it's it fucks up your aim. So one of the things you have to do or you can do is you place your other hand against, against your dominant hand that's holding the gun and you pull back a little bit. You, you pull your one hand in towards your body while at the same time you're trying to hold that gun straight out away from your body. What happens is you've got these forces now that are competing. You've got the force of one arm pointing the gun away from your body, the force of the other hand pulling the gun back towards your body ever so slightly. It doesn't take much. And what happens is, it, for some reason, the 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 balance of those two forces keeps your aim true. The balance of those forces will allow you to avoid some of those some of those psychological things that you are doing when you are shooting the gun that are that are causing you to to, to shoot you know uh, high and right. That happens to me, or high and left, something like that. You put a little bit of competing, competing force there, and suddenly your aim is true, and this happened to me. It was amazing. So here's the idea that Jordan is bringing up, something more like that, like the yin and the yang, the balance of competing forces, and something about the harmony between the forces is creating something significant. The harmony itself is significant. It's the thing that's valuable. It's the thing we want, the harmony between chaos and order. We don't want all chaos. We don't want all order. That seems to be what Foucault wants. And again, hard to blame him. Hard to blame him when you're living through the Second World War. Yes, you want one side to be victorious. Yes, you want an end to this. But there is no end to existence. There is no end to being. And it's not, it's not a, a winner-take-all situation. It's a, it's a harmony. It's more like a dance between two partners. All right. So I think that's a good way of introducing uh, postmodernism and Foucault. And um, again, the best thing I can do uh, to give you some counterpoints is probably pepper in some Jordan Peterson where I can. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the first section here, I want to I want to call power and knowledge. So this has to do with going back to what Wiki said, that Foucault's theories primarily address the relationship between power and knowledge. So let's get into Foucault's words about power and knowledge. All right, Foucault says, The individual is a product of power. The individual is a product of power. What does that mean? That means that your personality, the thing that you call yourself, the thing that you've developed over all your life experiences and your interactions with with the world and with other people, your your individuality, the thing you hold on to as you, the thing you recognize when somebody says your name, the individual, that thing is a product of power. Do you you believe that? You were created somehow. The thing that you call yourself, that was created as a byproduct of this power struggle between groups do you think that I mean there's a way in which you can say if culture is this power struggle somehow in this like you know abstract sort of way then maybe yes so then maybe your individuality is sort of created somehow through your experience of culture but but not entirely it's not like we're all I mean if that were the case we'd kind of all be the same or at least much more similar we you know we're all just Getting, getting spit out of the, of the culture machine, you know, in a uniform sort of way. <clears throat> and that is, that is what culture tries to do. But how successful is it? Do we all come out like cookie cutters? Are we all exactly the same? No. There's something else going on here. The individual is not strictly the product of power. It can't be, as far as I'm concerned. But this is what Foucault is going to lead with. The individual is the product of power. That's what made you. Power. And it wasn't you that made you exactly; it was this power struggle going on all around you. That's what made you. Is that how does that you know? Is that does that rub you the right way? You know, kind of. You can see how your how Foucault's postmodernism is taking the power away from you to even to even create your own identity. It's not even you that are, that's doing that. Interesting. Okay, Foucault says. It's my hypothesis that the individual is not a pre-given entity, which is seized on by the exercise of power. The individual is the product of a relation of power exercised over bodies, movements, desires, forces. The individual is a product of a relation of power exercised over bodies, movements, desires, forces. So so somehow... um, you know, maybe we can think about this culturally or socially. Um, you can see that there are restrictions to what you can do with your body. There are restrictions to where you can go. There are restrictions to what you're allowed to want. So when he says there's an exercise over desires, that's kind of true. Like if you if you have a desire, let's say as a kid um, to to you know you want you want you want to be greedy, you want everything for yourself, mine, mine, mine. We all know that kid can't play with my toy. It's fucking mine. That kid, you know. Maybe we could all, we all go through a stage like that. Let's say, but that desire is not okay. The society says it's not okay, so we limit that desire. We don't allow a kid to go on saying, mine, mine, mine. And if we do, he kind of gets outcast. By the time he's adult, nobody wants to be around him anymore. So you can see there are restrictions to what things like what we're allowed to want. And th- those things don't come from us exactly, but they do control who we become, kind of. So I'm not going to be a greedy little dickhead if the culture uh, you know, kind of beats out of me the impulse that that's okay. Right? And that's what we do right? To a certain degree. So there's some truth. There's so, there is some truth in this. this. You can see it, but it's not cut and dry that a relation of power is the whole story. But to Foucault, it's the whole story. Okay. So he goes on. He says, there is no escaping from power. That is, uh, so, excuse me, start over. There is no escaping from power, that it is always already present, constituting that very thing which one attempts to counter with it. So he's saying that this power dynamic is always there. It's always there. And he goes on to say, where there is power, there is resistance. And that's interesting. That's interesting for a lot of reasons, because resistance, to me, seems to come from the individual. Resistance doesn't come from the group. Right? The group doesn't exactly make decisions. It's like a herd of animals, You know, if one if one of the herd animals in the top of the pack senses danger to the right, he turns to the left, and everybody else follows him. There's not exactly a decision being made there. Where resistance happens is in the individual. It's not in the group, and that's something that Foucault, as you as we go along, you'll see how he he continues to to discredit and push that individuality to the side as much as possible. But I think that's funny. Because to Foucault, there has to be a power dynamic. It's not like, it's not like a power rises and it has no resistance to it and it just takes over. A power is always being balanced by some other power. It's always struggling with some other power so that there is a power and there's a resistance. And it, it, So the picture that, that's being painted here is much more like what Jordan Peterson brought up. It's a, it's a dance. It's a harmony. It's a balance. That's what a power dynamic is. And this is what Foucault says when he says, "Where there is power, there is resistance." That's the power dynamic; it's power and resistance together. All right, he goes on to say, "My main concern will be to locate the forms of power, the channels it takes, and the discourses it permeates, in order to reach the most tenuous and individual modes of behavior." So here I have to point out again a little bit of a, a little bit of a contradiction in Foucault. <coughs> So he's saying what his main concern is going to be, which thank you, Foucault, for, for being plain about what you're doing here because not everyone's, not everyone's so honest and upfront. He says, my concern is going to be to locate forms of power, the channels that that power takes, the ideas that that, that power generates and permeates through the culture because I want to, I want to identify all of those areas so that i can make possible the most individual modes of behavior. Let me say that again. He's going to identify power. He's going to point to it and say this is you know undue influence, this is undue influence, this is undue influence. These are all things that are making us less individuals. These are all things that are limiting our possibilities. I'm going to point them out so that people can can realize, "Oh, i can i can be what i want to be." I can think what I want to think. I can go in all these crazy directions. Um, I, that's what he means when he says to, to bring about it, you know individual modes of behavior. So he's making it out like the goal of postmodernism, the goal of um, challenging of, of making plain and challenging this power dynamic. The goal of it is to allow people to be more individuals. This is coming from the same person who, for the rest of this dialogue, is going to talk about the group, the group, the group. So this is where I think some of the contradiction is from such a smart man as as Michel Foucault to not understand that he's talking out both sides of his mouth, I guess is what I mean. I'm not sure that Foucault ever reconciled this. At least I didn't see where he did. So if anybody knows, let me know. All right. Back to Foucault, he says, Man whom we are invited to free is already in himself the effect of a subjugation more profound than himself. So that's just literally not even a complete sentence. But wow. Let me read it again. Man whom we are invited to free. So he's talking about here the goal that he just referenced, the goal of his, of his philosophical exercise is to free the individual, to be an individual. To not to not to not be bumping up against all the walls, all these phony fake walls that culture and society and power struggles have uh, have have kind of boxed us into. He's going to tear down those boxes as best he can, so we can we can bloom and flourish and be individuals. To be free, to be weird and strange and taboo, that kind of thing. To see what new things we can bring about. Again, a very Petersonian thing to say, you know, in Jordan Peterson's mind. The chaos is is the generative force, its potential. Everything, anything and everything can come from it. And and seemingly our goal to Jordan Peterson, the meaning of our life, is to see what we can bring from the chaos into reality. This is exactly what Foucault is saying in in a certain way. They're going about it in different ways, but the goals seem to line up a little bit here. And so when Foucault says that man whom we are invited to free, he's talking about, again, wanting uh, the individual to be freed from all of these arbitrary you know rules and, and uh, barriers. And he says that that person is already in himself the effect of a subjugation more profound than himself. So what does he mean by that? He's saying that the person who we want to be free, the individual, that he is already a slave to himself somehow. And he calls that a subjugation more profound than himself. Now, I'm going to keep reading because it'll get clearer. He says, a soul inhabits him and brings him to existence, which is itself a factor in the mastery that power exercises over the body. Oh, my God. The soul is the effect and instrument of a political anatomy. The soul is the prison of the body. The soul is the prison of the body. All right, so first of all, very strange here for somebody who, uh, who's, who's a proclaimed atheist to talk about the soul, but also strange for him to paint this picture because this is, a, this is the mind-body problem. This is something that philosophers like Foucault are very familiar with, the idea that we have a body and that we have a mind or soul. And it's, to us, it seems to be like something connected to the world, our body, And something not, our soul, our consciousness. And we've always struggled to reconcile those two things. And the reality is that's how we are. We're we're made up of this sort of unlikely mix of spiritual and material. And it's hard to understand. And so philosophers have been arguing about this for a long time. And this is what Foucault brings up. A soul inhabits him and brings him to existence. Okay, so you can see a, a soul... Inhabiting a body and bringing that body, making that body alive or something like that, which is itself a factor in the mastery that power exercises over the body. So now the soul is some some form of power that's being exercised over the body. The soul, you can imagine, your consciousness seems to be in control of your body. Almost like you're a little, like only certain people are going to get this reference. Uh, It's almost like you're a mech. Right. You're you're a mech uh, warrior uh, and you're driving. You're in that suit. You're sitting in the driver's seat, driving this giant mech. Uh, for those people who don't know, <laughs> it's, it's mechs goes back to it goes back to the 80s and Japanese animation cartoons. But the idea is uh, <laughs> in the future, we're going to fight in these giant robot suits. The drivers are like uh, like Power Rangers. You can you can think of that, or uh, or or a Voltron, or something, right? The the, the soldiers are driving these suits. Uh, that's what I imagine that that Foucault is describing when he says that the soul is exercising power over the body. It's like you are the Green Ranger driving the freaking Dragon Zord. The Zord is your body, and uh, you are the soul, <clears throat> and that's how you are the master over your body. Do you understand the point he's making? So there is a power dynamic between your soul and your body. And that's already within you. Very, very, very similar to what we were talking about before with Nietzsche, where where you have Apollo and Dionysus in your body. You know, there's that power dynamic all the time. This is how Foucault says it. A soul inhabits him and brings him to existence, which is itself a factor in the mastery that power exercises over the body. The soul is the effect and instrument of a political anatomy The soul is the prison of the body. What do you think of that? Amazing. I mean, it's an interesting idea. But what he's saying here is that we are a slave to ourselves and experience a power struggle within by virtue of our very existence, by virtue of being conscious that we, we can't escape it. We have this power dynamic going on inside of us. I want to point out something else coming from an atheist this sounds a lot like the notion of original sin to me. It's just painted up in a s- philosophical costume. So if, if I have a soul and the soul commands the body, and that somehow is this power struggle between body and soul, then somebody there in Foucault's mind is the good guy and somebody is the bad guy. You know, the body is sort of the slave of the soul. And so the body should be, should be liberated from that, from that control. Um. And again, that reminds me of this idea, this Judeo-Christian idea That I'm born without any power of my own Without any without any um, agency of my own I'm already tainted by sin I'm already tainted by this master-slave dynamic Where my soul is the master over my body My body's a slave to it, right? So I'm born, as a Jew or a Christian I'm born already tainted by sin That's what this sounds like to me Um, also, he says something weird here. He says that the soul is a political instrument. What the heck does that mean? It seems to imply that the soul is, is wielded by something towards some end. Like it's a, like it's a tool. Like, like Foucault believes our soul or our consciousness exists strictly for the purposes of manifesting a power struggle between our body and our soul. If we didn't have, we weren't conscious. We wouldn't have the soul. It would just be the body. We'd just be an animal, running around obeying our instincts. But because we have consciousness, suddenly we have this power dynamic. Why? Why does Foucault want to want to? You know, why does he want to bring this up? Kind of at, at the basis of this power struggle to point out that it's happening within us and that it's unavoidable. Seemingly, because the power struggle is seen as generative somehow. And what it generates is, is the purpose of existence. So the power struggle itself, it's what's happening. It's the actions that are happening. Imagine existence is a theater. What's happening on stage? What's happening? So we, we would have all sorts of answers to what's happening. Foucault says what's happening is a power struggle, a power dynamic. That's what's happening. Nothing else is happening. It looks like other things are happening, but behind, them, the behind those perceptions, it's just a power struggle. You see, how, you see how that's starting to sound like that Terminator 2 substance behind, behind our perceptions? Objective reality is a power struggle? That's interesting. It's interesting for an atheist because it's starting to sound pretty goddamn spiritual. Let's keep going. Foucault says, Let us say that we are obliged to, to produce the truth by the power that demands truth and needs it in order to function. We are forced to tell the truth. We are constrained. We are condemned to admit the truth or to discover it. Interesting. So he says, I'm going to read this first bit again. He says, we are obliged to to produce the truth by the power that demands truth. So you can see that what he's describing here is something like... We don't have a choice in the matter, but, but to generate truth. And we're doing that in response to a power that demands truth. It's interesting because we don't really know what he means by this. What is the power that demands truth? What is that? Um, so where my mind goes here is, um, it's the language that he uses, where he says we're obliged to produce the truth. So that's another way of saying, we're forced to tell the truth. And then he talks about the power that demands the truth. And again, he doesn't say what that power is exactly, but it implies that the truth is not a desirable thing. Right? If we're, if we're forced to tell it, it's like we wouldn't tell it if, if we weren't forced to tell it. So it sort of sounds like the truth is being pulled out of us against our will by whatever the power is that's demanding it of us. And, and that kind of makes it sound like the truth, whatever that means in this context, isn't something good. Because if it were, it wouldn't need to be pulled from us by power. We would just give it. It's presented as if truth is foisted upon us and, and forced out of us by something against our will. But what is that thing? Power. That's what Foucault says. What in the Sam Hell does that mean, Foucault? Whose power? Power is not a free-floating supernatural force. Is it? Power doesn't have intention or will all by itself. Does it? Is that, is that what Foucault wants us to believe? That power is this free-floating thing out there and it has a will? Like it wants to struggle and, there's, and it, you know, this is something that it wants to do? like something like that. Like now now power has an agency and an identity all by itself apart from us. Is that is that is that what he's saying? And power isn't necessarily wielded against others. Can't it be wielded for others? You know, can't power be used for good? It's not like power is always something that's being used against somebody. Can't can't power be used for good? You know, isn't that right? Foucault's supposed to be a political activist. Isn't that what, what the government is supposed to be doing to wield power for good? Come on. Come on, Michelle. Come on, buddy. All right. He goes on. An actual fact, he says the manifold sexualities all form the correlates of exact procedure of power. So this was an interesting quote, but I wanted to bring it up. you know he talked he talks about like there was a quote in here about homosexuality, and uh, i didn't I didn't include it, but i I did read it and here he talks about sexuality again, and I think it's important for a few reasons. It's important to bring up because with a postmodern connection to modern um, social justice movements and uh, the modern the modern left, you might say progressive left, sexuality is a big part of it. Um, you know, the transgender debate and uh, gay and lesbian rights and, um, you know, the, uh, all, the, all the various letters and symbols that keep, continue to be added to uh, the LGBTQ+, plus all that stuff, I'm sure I'm missing some, um, that's all a part of it. And, um, you know, sexuality is one of those things that has a great deal of tradition and taboo that surrounds it. So if you were someone like Foucault that wanted to tear down these arbitrary walls Doing it with sexuality it, it, is it, It's a prime target. It's like there's lots of stigmas about sexuality. Lots of things you can't do. Lots of things you can't say. That's the kind of stuff that Foucault was resisting. It's like who the fuck says I can't say? Who the fuck says we can't do? You know, he wants to push back against that power dynamic, and uh, so he brings this up this this, this sexuality. He says manifold sexuality. So that could be all the different things that, that you might think of, um, you know, gay, straight, um, uh, queer, you know, maybe all the stuff that we all the conversations we have about gender uh, today, gender roles and all that sort of thing. Um, that is the type of critique that comes from Foucault. It's like, let's go in here, let's start tearing apart all of these ideas and concepts that have to do with sexuality so that we can point out the absurdity of them, so that we don't have to obey them anymore, so that new types of sexuality can be born, new understandings can come out of it. Uh, there's, all, there's this emphasis in postmodernism on the novel, bringing things, bringing things that are new into reality or paving the way for new things to be, to be born. And I think that's also an area where someone like Jordan Peterson and Foucault would be hand in hand. They both seem to believe that, I think with a little bit of a different color, but they both seem to agree that creation, that that novelty and creation are absolutely key to meaning and to purpose. And I think that's interesting. But anyway... Uh, He says here, the manifold sexualities all form the correlates of exact procedures of power. So I don't know what this sentence even means, Um, and there's a lot of postmodernism that's like that, very, very hard to understand. Uh, But what he's saying here is that there's a connection between sexuality and power. And so here's my piece. Um, Is sexuality reducible to a power struggle between the sexes? Sexuality. Is Is that what that is? You know, you think about romance and the birth of your first child and, you know, um, adolescent, you know, p- periods of just lust and, and uh, you know, all the things that go along with sexuality that, that have to do with your forming your identity and, and uh, you know, forming your kind of moral compass, which happens, which happens so much during puberty and, 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 you know, the bloom of sexuality. Imagine all of that stuff. Is all of that stuff reducible to a power struggle between the sexes, do you think? I wrote down a little note here, my my opinion, hogwash, that's what I wrote, hogwash. It's an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification. There's a lot of that happening in postmodernism, and it ignores basically all of the characteristics of sexuality that we actually care about. I mean, there are power struggles in sexuality, there are things like rape, there are things like, uh, you know, p- people feeling diminished by gender roles, you know, that that's those are legitimate conversations but they're like marginal conversations. When you, look at the, when you look at the topic of sexuality as a whole, we're going to get bogged down on that. I'm going to tear everything down that we care about, you know, to do with romance and sexuality and our identity, because we want to find if there's something in these um, uh, narratives that we tell about, about sexuality that, that is holding us back somehow. Like, I wonder where, where the period of diminishing returns, where does that come in here? Like, what do we have to tear down to find, you know, like where do, where, where's the limit here? Where, where do we stop? What do we have to tear down in our, so, in our society, in our culture, to find all these bugs in the system? Like, at some point, at some point, are we, are we causing more harm than good? I don't know that Foucault ever asked that question. I certainly don't think that the progressives and the postmodernists today are asking that question. But I digress. Back to Foucault. He says, this is where he first starts talking about language. This, this is important. He says, when language arrives at its own edge, what it finds is not a positivity that, that contradicts it, but the void that will efface it. Into that void it must go, consenting to come undone, in a silence that is not the intimacy of a secret, but a pure outside where words endlessly unravel. So when language arrives at its own edge, so when we get to the point where, where we've, we've used the language to, to the highest level that we can, we've cracked it open, we've, we've done everything we possibly can with a language. Let's, let's talk about this from the, from, the, uh, from the example of a word because language is always changing, and this is also a postmodern thing. This is something you see from the left, uh, the progressives today, all of the time. When we've talked about this before, so I don't want to berate this idea, but the idea that you can create a word or you, or that the meaning of words evolve and change over time, sometimes that's intentional, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's natural, um, but what that when you get to the end of the kind of usefulness of a word, that what happens is, he, Foucault says that it must go into the void, it must consent to come undone that word has the the meaning of that word has to go into has to get sucked into the black hole from whence it came he calls that he calls that a pure outside where words endlessly unravel so this is an interesting picture that he's painting of meaning and language where the where the meaning of words is constantly transforming and at some point the meaning of the words become exhausted they no longer have meaning anymore and that, that when that happens, they just get recycled. They go back into the, into the void where they came. And so the implication is that we, we give, we create words and assign meaning to them. And, that, and that, that meaning is not, it was really hard to describe. Imagine that Terminator 2 substance again. So let's go back to this understanding, this picture I tried to paint uh, earlier that Foucault believes the same thing Jordan does about objective reality. Uh, that's maybe that's a stretch, but l- let me just say that, that we have this infinite potential, whatever this is, this thing that I call God that exists behind all of our perceptions. It's the ones and zeros in the matrix that, that the computer program that these people are living in, that's perception. And the ones and zeros behind in the, in the movie, the matrix, that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's whatever that is, whatever's really there. and, Foucault is saying, that's what's really behind language. It's infinite meaning. So if I pull, if I create a word and I assign some meaning to it, what I'm doing is I'm arbitrarily coming up with a sound. I'm pretending that some little bit of this infinite meaning, I I can attach to this sound, this word. Have I really? Well, not really. Um, And what does that mean exactly? It means that as long as we agree that that's what this word means that we can kind of get by with it as long as we can get everybody on board but the truth is every word has infinite meaning and you can see that i mean you, you i wish i had a good example to bring up to to, uh, to bring up to illustrate this but but you can see how words how words change their meaning over time um you know I, i'm trying to think of a of a maybe like a pop culture word or something um you know like like um Oh, geez, I don't know. I'm such a freaking 90s kid. Uh, just thinking about like like the word bad, like, like, like the word bad, the way Michael Jackson would use it. I'm bad. I'm bad. That's a good thing, man. That's a fucking good thing if you're Michael Jackson bad. But in modern and, you know, in, in the ordinary parlance, bad means exactly the opposite. So that's that's you know, maybe it's a terrible example, but it's an example nonetheless how the meaning of a word is absolutely. Flexible. And the only thing making it mean what it means is mutual agreement. And if someone like Michael Jackson comes in and says the word bad no longer means bad, it means good, it means cool, you get enough people to agree because Michael Jackson is Michael Jackson, guess what? Bad means good now, buddy. Bad means good. That's what he's saying. That's what Foucault is pointing out. That language is like that. Um, I think that's absolutely interesting. I have a hard time poking holes in that. I think that there's something to that. There's something to that. Um, And I wonder what Jordan Peterson would say about that. I have a hard time thinking that Jordan would disagree with what I'm saying. Um, Okay, so the meaning of language is transitory. It's always transforming, something like that. So language is ultimately a tool of power that we use against everyone else, in Foucault's estimation. Language is not real, and therefore it cannot and should, excuse me, it can and should change. Language is not real, it can and should change, and that's ultimately up to us. We can change the meaning of language so that it's a tool that's useful again for us, for whatever whatever we want to use it for. Um, and when it changes, the meaning is lost or transformed, but something new and novel can emerge from its ghost and that seems to be the highest good for Foucault, novelty. So if we suck this old word that doesn't have any meaning anymore into the black hole, then we can regurgitate whatever the, the pieces were back into the world to create something new now. And you can see that with a, with a good and bad example, the Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson example of bad. Oh, boy. All right, so Foucault says, he says, in a sense, I'm a moralist. Insofar as I believe that one of the tasks, one of the meanings of human existence, is never to accept anything as definitive, untouchable, obvious, or immobile. No aspect of reality should be allowed to become a definitive law for us. We have to rise up against all forms of power. But not just power in the narrow sense of the word, referring to the power of a government or of one social group over another. These are only a few particular instances of power, Power is anything that tends to render immobile and untouchable those things that are offered to us as real, as true, as good. All right, so this is an important quote for Foucault. He he talks about himself as a moralist, and then he's explaining what he means by that. So he he points out things that are untouchable. Things, things that in our culture and in our society we want to remain permanent and unchanged. Those are things like the law. Those are things like, um, you know, in America it's property rights. It's, um, you know, it's uh, protection under the law. It's, it's, there's, there's things like that that we, we want to remain the same. We want to be able to rely on. And like I said before from the, uh, the um, Nietzsche example of Apollo, that the order is something that we need. Think about children, think about how how important it is for them to have a bedtime, how important it is for them to have a schedule so that they know when they're eating and they know when they're playing and they know when they're you know when they're this and when they're that. how important order is, especially when we're developing as children you know psychologically is so important. Um, so there are things like that. there are things like that that, that we, we would say we want to be untouchable. we want to be permanent. But what Foucault focuses on is that those are the things that get in the way. Those are the things that become these arbitrary walls that we get so used to. We don't even we don't even know they're there anymore. Um, that's the same logic that people use in the social social justice movement. Let's say today, when they talk about white privilege, it's like, oh, it's invisible to you because you don't you don't see it because you because you, you know you it's 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 so ever present that you get you adapt to it. You get used to it, and it becomes invisible to you. You don't see it. But it's still there. That's the same type of argument. It's the same thing that comes up. Same thing that comes up uh, again in social justice as as in uh, Michel Foucault. Um. And and to Foucault, it's tearing those. It's pointing those things out and tearing them down. That leads to more opportunity. That leads to greater potential. That leads to something new. And and it's interesting that he points out the things that we consider real true and good, that those are the ones we have to be the most suspicious of. Because those are the ones that those are the ones that seem to be defending their position. Those are the ones that the culture and the society is saying hold the highest value. Those are the ones that we want to remain. We don't want to deconstruct them. We don't want to critique them. We don't want them to go away. We want the things that we consider real, true, and good. And Foucault is saying those should not be untouchable. Those should be the things that we go after first. We should be examining those things because the things that we consider real may not be real. The things we consider true may not be true. The things we consider good may not be good. And we only will know that if we pay attention, if we if we poke holes, if we get in there and, and, and root around in there. And there's some truth in that. I mean, there's some truth in that. And you, you can think of, you can think of the uh, uh, atrocities of um, Nazi Germany and uh, the ideology there and how the people believed that they were that they were real, true, and good. And if nobody ever examined them, then nobody would ever point that out. And the Nazis would just keep doing what they're doing. Something like that. So you can see that there's something there. But you can also see the risk. And this is something that Foucault, I don't think, ever ever acknowledges. The risk is if you go in there and you start pulling the rug out under the things that we, we consider real and true and good, what happens if you accidentally undermine something that is actually real, actually true, or actually good? What happens if you undermine that? What happens if you take that away? The person who Foucault loved so much, Nietzsche, specifically warned him against that when he talked about the death of God. What happens when that foundation gets pulled out? When God is dead, then will there be, will there be enough water to wash away that blood? And then what will, what will we do? So Nietzsche tried to warn Foucault, but Foucault didn't, must, not, must have fucking missed that sentence. Nietzsche is not the easiest read. Um, I don't mean to be disrespectful to Foucault. I think he was a very smart guy, but come on, man. So to Foucault, it's like we should di- dissect and deconstruct those things that we hold as true, real and good so that we can rise above the power the ideas and the concepts hold over us so that's also important it's like even the idea of true or real or good even those ideas all by themselves are like limits that we're putting on ourselves and that we that we we actually have to we actually have to disrupt that power the power that those concepts have over us something like that think about that But are ideas of real, true, and good, are they legitimate? Are those ideas even legitimate? If they are, why destroy them, Foucault? Why destroy them? Why claim that they have undue power over us or any power over us at all? And why would destroying these be arbitrarily good? See, to, to Foucault, an idea or a concept being questioned or undermined is always good. why? Because it clears the way for something new to arise. So why does the novel or the new equal good for Foucault? And why can't the old coexist with the new? I think that is is at the crux of the difference between Foucault and Jordan Peterson. Because Jordan talks about the dance, the harmony, the synthesis of the chaos and order. So to Jordan... If you have something that's old, that's corruptible, that it can always be recycled and renewed and turned into something good again, you don't have to get rid of the old to have something new. To Foucault, it sort of seems like you have to demolish the old to have something new. To, to Jordan, it's like, no, we can build on it. We can synthesize it, the old with the new. And if you don't, th- that's the death of your father, that, that the mythological death of your father that Jordan talks about. He's like, look, if you demolish the old... That you're losing your, your, your footing. All of the work that all the human beings that came before you did to, 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 uh, to make your life better than theirs was. All of the culture that we've created to help our, our future, our children. That you're throwing all that under the bus and starting anew. And Jordan's like, there are risks with that. There are very large risks with that. That's what Nietzsche was pointing out with The Death of God. And that's something that Foucault seems to ignore. All right, he goes on. He says, the strategic adversary is fascism. The fascism in us all, in our heads and in our everyday behavior. The fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. So here Foucault is is pointing out, again, this internal struggle. He's saying that all of us are, are fascists in our soul. Now, if you guys don't know what fascism means, and I don't blame you because it's with things like Antifa, anti-fascist, and with the modern understanding of fascism, you know, compared to the historical understanding of fascism, it doesn't surprise me that people don't really understand what fascism means. But what it means, you can wiki this if you don't believe me, is a form of, of authoritarian power that involves the suppression of opposition. So it's authoritarian power. That suppresses opposition. So you can see that with the Nazis, for sure, they were fascists. But every single communist system that's ever existed has been fascist as well. You can see that anything that has a dictator, uh, you know, controlling power, and anything that uh, um, suppresses opposition, which is every dictator, that's fascism. So you know that's what we're talking about here. Um, Foucault is saying that that exists in in each each one of us. That we all love power and want power, and we all don't want don't want power exerted over us. So that all of us have this have this instinct going on that both loves and hates power, <clears throat> something like that. And uh, he says it's the very desire that dominates and exploits us, and that we have to fight we have to fight against the fascism in ourselves. So you know I don't disagree with this, but I think we diverge 180 degrees at this point from where Foucault began when he was talking about critiquing power dynamics. He's like, that's aimed to reach, if you remember, to reach the most individual forms of behavior. That's what he said, to reach the most individual forms of behavior. And yet here we see a rejection of the individual as he's presented as fundamentally corrupted by his instinctual desire to dominate and exploit. So what is it, Foucault? Do we want to, do we want to clear the way for the individual to be an individual? Or do we want to push down the individual because that's the part of us, that, that's the fascist, that's the part of us that, wants to, that loves power, wants to exploit and dominate? It's the individual that wants to do that, right? So, we want, so we, want to, we want to subdue the individual? Or do we want to clear the way for the individual to bloom? What do we want to do here, Foucault? Which one is it? He goes on, he says, the real political task in a society is to criticize the workings of institutions that appear to be both neutral and independent to criticize and attack them in such a manner that the political violence that has always exercised itself obscurely through them will be unmasked so that one can fight against them so this quote is extremely important to remember in in reference to what's happening today So Foucault says that the real political task in society, this is the goal of politics, is to criticize the workings of institutions that appear to be neutral and independent. So we're going to criticize all of the institutions in the society that keep things running. Those are things like schools. Those are things like governments. Those are things like communities. Those are things like the grand unifying narrative of our culture, you know, like, uh, you know, being proud to be an American for whatever reason uh, that you, you know you might choose, or 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 even to hate being American, which seems to be awful popular these days. Whatever the unifying narrative is, all of these things. Uh, he's saying that the pol- that the job of politics is to criticize all of those things. Why? Because if you criticize them all, then you can find, he says the political violence that has always exercised itself obscurely through them, through these institutions. Okay, so let me let me just try to break this up a little bit so we understand what the fuck he's saying. He's saying that the institutions that make up our societies, like all the things I just said, that those things have always been obscurely committing violence politically against certain groups, certain people. He says obscurely because he wants to point out, you may not have noticed. You may not have seen this. This, is, this may not be obvious to you. Well, why? Is that because it's fucking bullshit? Or is that because um, it's like secret and being done uh, you know, in, in, in the shadows? Is that, was that what you're saying? That he kind of seems to be saying that. He's saying that the institutions in our society are committing political violence against us, and they're doing it in secret. So what we need to do is tear them apart, so we can find those, those areas of violence so that we can unmask them and bring them to light. And then we can fight back against them, but only when, only when we've done that. So to Foucault, it seems like the only way that we can find the problems, that we can find the bug in the machine is to tear everything down, tear it all down to find the bug. Then we can crush the bug. Then what, Foucault? We've torn down all the institutions. Then what, Foucault? So this is what the communists would, would then step in and say. Great, and then we can bring about the communist revolution. This is this is what this is what Marx talked about when he said when he said that that there's phases in the process of, of communism, and the uh, and the phase that comes before the communist you know the glorious communist you know end game where where the government doesn't have to exist anymore. Um, you know this is the opportunity that Foucault is describing for, for, for the final stage of, of, of communism, for the communist utopia. So we're going to tear everything down so we can find that bug and squash it, and then we're, Then we're just going to, in the ruins here, we're going to bring about this communist revolution. Foucault doesn't, ex- doesn't exactly say that, though. And he doesn't say, what are we going to do then when all of our institutions are in pieces? What are we going to do then? Isn't that a risk? Isn't that a dangerous thing? You know, Conservatives everywhere would be, agree with me and liberals everywhere would say fucking burn it down let's let's see what happens you know that's the apollo and the dionysus struggling all right so political violence being perpetrated covertly by institutions against society just seems interesting to me it just seems like it just seems like a stretch what is that exactly you know, maybe in a communist or a centrally planned system, you could say that the government imposes its will. You know, it, it imposes its power against its citizens because um, they don't have a say in the matter. But in a capitalist system or in a free market, I, I don't see that. I don't see how, that's, how that could possibly be true. All right, so... Foucault says, the work of an intellectual is not to mold the political will of others. Let me just stop right there. This is a bigger, a bigger piece here, but Foucault has just said in this, in this first sentence, this opening sentence, exactly the opposite of what all of the people who follow postmodernism today are doing. The political left, the progressives in particular, um, they want to mold the political will of others. All you have to do is watch the news and see how they're talking to you that, to understand that they're berating you. They're making you out to be dumb if you don't agree with them. And that has been happening for a very long time in, in media. Um, that's the thing that I b- brought up when I said that that Rachel Maddow single-handedly turned me against the Democratic Party when I was trying to figure out where I, where I would land politically. That her arrogance and talking, talking about things like that, like you're an absolute idiot if you don't agree with me, like every single one of these absolute assholes on social media that's yelling at people who haven't got the vaccine, calling them, you know, pussies or saying that they're afraid uh, or whatever it is that they're saying. Um, It's shaming people into, into agreement with you and it's arrogant. And I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to beat this up. I just want to say Foucault says this, the work of an intellectual is not to mold the political will of others And the intellectuals in academia and in the the media are all trying to do that today. And they've been doing that since the 60s, basically. And Foucault, who's their, you know, who's their George Washington, you might say, is telling them that's not their place. So there's that. And I'll keep reading. He says, It is to re-examine evidence and assumptions, to shake up habitual ways of working and thinking, to dissipate conventional familiarities, to reevaluate rules and institutions, and to participate in the formation of a political will. So this is what he thinks the role of, of the intellectual is in, in the culture. It's to it's to reexamine, poke holes, and tear down all of those things that are that that we wouldn't ordinarily even look at. The things that are invisible to us are assumptions our habits, the things that are conventional, traditional, familiar, that all of those things we should be tearing down. That's what, the, that's what the work of the intellectual is. It's to question all of the things that we don't question. Now, I kind of don't disagree with that. I think that is important. It's very important because assumptions, I don't know if, if your mom or dad ever told you about assuming, but it will make an ass out of you and me. It will indeed. Mom was right. Uh, I think the, uh, the progressives, <laughs> progressives and the postmodernists need to fucking listen to my mom. Uh, it will indeed. Okay, so the role of the intellectual is not to influence others' political opinions, but rather, uh, he says, to participate in the forming of a political will. That's interesting. I'm not sure that those are different things, by the way to influence someone's political opinion and to participate in forming a political will kind of seem like the same thing, because a political will is being described here like a free-floating thing, like politics is a spirit, and it has an intention. Its will is to X, Y, and Z. That's kind of how he's painting this out, That, that, that citizens in a society can work together to form a political will, and that will can work in the society all by itself. Once we've created the spirit... This fucking political spirit, it'll just swim through our culture and society and do the things we want it to do. Something like that. But again, I'm not sure that forming a political will and and convincing people to believe the same thing politically are different, but Foucault seems to think so. Um, By forming a political will, I wonder, is Foucault referring to an emergent collective will of the people or of society? Not of the people, exactly, because they're made of individuals, but of society, Now, isn't this achieved by creating a uniform kind of majority opinion by persuading others to your mind? I think so. So I kind of think this Foucault's, you know, making an arbitrary distinction here. But this idea of a political will, like this emergent collective will, this is where we're starting to see Foucault lean towards the idea that the group can form a will. And that when it it does that, that the group kind of, the group kind of operates like a like its own entity, right? The group now has a will, like individuals have a will. It has desires and goals, like that's a weird thing to say about society, but that's what Foucault is saying here. And he's like, once that's happened, um, he says that that's the role of every citizen to play to help form this political will. That now you have a group. You know, the, the polis, as the Greeks would say, the, who are the people that make up the, the political entity and that now this group is more powerful and more important than the individual. That's that's going to be what we're, what we're going to start to see. All right. So Foucault points out some interesting stuff here. He says schools serve the same social function as prisons and ment- mental institutions to define, classify, control and regulate people. He also says, is it surprising that prisons resemble factories, schools, barracks, hospitals, which all resemble prisons? So, so the point he's making here. Is all of the boxes and rules that we paint up for ourselves that we live in, all these arbitrary kind of conditions that we place on ourselves and limit ourselves, you know, all of these things that we do, and we kind of ingrain our, even our children, we indoctrinate even them into this system, that what, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in prisons of of some form, conceptual prisons. He says he says schools are the same way, factories, hospitals, you know, all of these things are designed like prisons. Why is that, do you think? And the implication seems to be because the power dynamics that are working behind behind the scenes want us to be slaves. And that's what we have to fight back against. Can't you see? Can't you see that the traditions and the, the institutions in society are making you all slaves and prisoners? Can't you see that? That's what he's saying. Do you feel like a prisoner? Maybe a little, I guess. I don't know. Not really. Alright, he says, a critique does not consist in saying that things aren't good the way they are. It consists in seeing on just what types of assumptions, familiar notions of established and unexamined ways of thinking, the accepted practices are based. So this is this is Foucault's way of justifying the critique, the tearing down of the institutions um, that postmodernism is designed to do. He's saying, look, it's not about, uh, you know, whether the institutions are good or bad the way they are. It's about whether they can be better and whether they are, or whether they're necessary. And if we, you know, if we can just question the assumptions that we never question, maybe we can find those answers. And if we don't question them, things will never change. And people don't like that idea. As much as people like security people don't like the idea that things will never change because nothing's ever good enough for us right nothing's ever good enough we live in the we live in the, the most prosperous time and, and if, you know this is the greatest time to be a human being ever even in the most terrible places on the planet it's better now to be a human being than it's ever been it's easier to live you know and uh, and and it's never good enough It's never good enough for us. So the idea that things might might be static and never change, that's a very scary thing. People don't like that idea either. And that brings me to my next quote. Foucault says, knowledge is not for knowing. Knowledge is for cutting. Knowledge is for cutting. Cutting what exactly, Foucault? Cutting up those institutions, cutting up those assumptions that we're blind to, cutting them up. That's what knowledge is for. So the more we know, the more we know what we don't know. The more we, the more we know, the more we know what's holding us back. So we go in and we, and we get rid of that stuff. That's, that's the idea. Foucault says, under no circumstances should one pay attention to those who tell one, don't criticize, since you're not capable of carrying out a reform. Critique doesn't have to be the premise of a deduction that concludes, this then is what needs to be done. It should be an instrument for those who fight, those who resist and refuse what is. It isn't a stage to a programming. It is a challenge direction, directed to what is. First of all, that's a very nihilistic thing to say. To say that you want to challenge what is. Okay? What is, this is a, this is a, a difficult conversation every time I bring it up, but I have to. When somebody says what is, what, what are they referring to? What is, is what exists, it's the state of things, it's what exists, it's everything that is and how it is, it's something I call being, so somebody who has a challenge to being, that, that mythologically is the story of the devil, the devil, Lucifer is the person who challenges being, Lucifer is the person who challenges God and says, I could have done it better, look at all these mistakes you made. Um, challenging what is is, um, as Jordan Peterson would say, it's, it's Cain from the Cain and the Abel story. You know, it's somebody that's, that's unwilling to see their own um, shortcomings and blames the world instead. You know, somebody who wants to challenge what is is not happy with, with existence. And that's a double-edged sword because, as Foucault would say, you have to challenge what is to make something new to bring something new and better into the world. And I agree. You can't get that by not challenging things. You're not going to get to the next scientific theory without challenging the existing ones. You know, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, But also to challenge what is is also a very ungrateful thing to do. It's very ungrateful. Because what is is beautiful and good in so many ways. And to not acknowledge that to not, to not say that there's things in there worth preserving or things in there that were hard gained, hard earned, and worthwhile. That's a very arrogant thing to say. It's a very short-sighted thing to say. And for somebody so smart as Foucault, it seems unlikely that that idea would not occur to him. But he's saying that to critique is important for that reason and that reason only. Even if you don't know what you would put in its place. And that is such a dumb thing to say, and such a dangerous thing to say. He says, uh, in the beginning here, he says, under no circumstances should you listen to someone who tells you not to criticize, uh, if you're not capable of carrying out a reform. What he's saying here is, don't sit there and criticize the systems and say how bad they are, unless you know something better, unless you can bring something better to the table. He's saying, don't let that hold you back from criticizing. You should still criticize, because that's very important, and it is important. But the idea here is if you if you criticize a system and you tear it down but you don't have something better to replace it with then what? And Foucault doesn't doesn't address that at all. In fact, he says don't even listen to that that voice in your mind telling you that. Why should I tear down this institution if I don't have something better to replace it with? Don't even listen to that 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 devil on your left shoulder. Just keep doing the, fighting the good fight and doing the good work. Tear it down. Tear it down. Don't let, don't let the fact that you don't have a better idea of something to replace this with hold you back from tearing it down. And that's what the left wants to do today. They want to tear things down. And they don't have anything better to replace it with. And that's very scary. So, so to challenge what is is to wish to transform being, in my opinion. It's to wish. It's it's to wish the world away to make it something that it's not. You wish that it was a different way. To make things different from the way they are, you know, perhaps to believe arrogantly that you are capable of doing so. You know, if you're the if you're the postmodernist having this thought, you're going to tear it down without something to, to replace it with. Why? Because you're because you're positioned to 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 tear it down? I mean, I just don't really know. There's, there's a hole here. There's a very goddamn big hole here. And it just seems arrogant to me and short-sighted. You're not going to tear down important parts of the institution and the culture, things so important and ingrained that, are, that they're invisible to us. There's, we rely on them so much we don't even see them anymore. You're going to tear them down and replace them with nothing. And then you're going to pat yourself on the back and applaud that you did something good I don't know about that. But to Foucault, it's, it's just an unquestioned good to tear these things down. All right, the last, the last quote in this piece, he says, justice must always question itself, just as society can exist only by means of the work it does on itself and on its institutions. So I think this is an interesting quote to end on, while, you know, this piece, because it's a warning. It's so a warning to the postmodernists today. And he, he says, justice must always question itself. He said, that's the only way things work. It's the only way institutions can, can remain vibrant and, uh, and um, you know, not, not, not degrade and become counterproductive. So you always have to keep breaking them down, keep questioning them, keep finding the, finding the bugs in the, in the machine. He says, justice is the same. You must always question justice. So you can imagine that's what people are doing uh, when, they're, when they're saying defund the police and Black Lives Matter. They're, they're trying to question justice. But they never question the justice of their own cause. And I want to point that out here. When Foucault says justice must always be questioned, you can definitely see defund the police people are questioning justice. But are they ever once questioning themselves are you being just in what you're doing BLM are you being just in what you're doing have you, have you questioned it have you asked yourself and you have to always do that you have to continue to do that as the movement changes and goes on you have to continue to always question is it just where are the bugs in your machine you have to have those eyes looking inwards that's what Foucault is saying How many postmodernists are doing that today? So I think it's a fair and a prophetic warning from Foucault. Like I said, is social justice questioning itself? Is RBLM? Is communist China? Is North Korea? No. They arrogantly believe that they're unquestionably right and virtuous. To question them in today's society is to make yourself a target. A target for that power. That Foucault is is warning us about. It's interesting. All right, so I want to turn a little bit now. We're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the self, the way that Foucault thinks about individuals. Because again, there's a there's a uh, dynamic here between the group and the individual that's um, kind of key to this whole postmodernism d- debate. So, what does Foucault have to say about that? All right, I'm going to open it up this way. He says the judges of normality are present everywhere. Excuse me, normality are present everywhere. We are in in the society of the teacher judge, the doctor judge, the educator judge, the social worker judge. It is on them that the universal reign of the normative is based. And each individual subject to its body, his gestures, his behaviors, his aptitudes, his achievements. So this is interesting. This is Foucault pointing out this idea of normal, and, and he uses the word normative, and you will see that everywhere in the uh, in the in the progressive language today, normative, the idea that there is a normal or an average, that there is a, that there is a mean or a median, that there's some way for us to that there is a measuring post or, or a measuring stick that we can use, uh, kind of middle of the road to compare people and their behaviors, and that idea is something that. Postmodern, the postmodern uh, philosophy doesn't like, and there's lots of um, resistance to it, and Foucault is no exception, and he's saying that in the society there's everybody's a judge of what's normal. Teachers, doctors, you know, social workers, uh, educators, everybody is uh, is telling you what's normal, how to how to be and how not to be, how to speak and how not to speak, and uh, and so that there's this weird th- normative kind of standard that everybody's being forced to comply with and you can see how there's you can see how you how you could imagine a power dynamic there that society is demanding some sort of normal normalcy from people and that it, in order to get that it has to it has to chisel away at all the things that make you unique it has to it has to impose its power against you somehow So the implication is that uh, the normal is something imposed on us against our will by society. This is one way in which we are oppressed, simply by forming the idea of normal. The very existence of this idea, it pins the normies against the anti-normies, for lack of a better word. As soon as we come up with the idea, the concept of normal, here's where it gets interesting. It's like the concept itself that exists oppresses us, so that there's a power in the idea of a normal that oppresses us for not conforming to it, and nobody can conform to it perfectly, something like that. And so the postmodern idea is that, this is that this is bad. This is an example of, of those arbitrary borders and walls and, and things that are preventing us from seeing, you know, paths of progress or, or moving forward, whatever that means. That's, again, not always a good thing. Uh, progress is not always a good thing, uh, although that, that, you know, you would be hard-pressed to think otherwise uh, when just hearing the word progressive seems pretty good, right? Not always. Change is not always good. It's not always for the better. All right, so Foucault says, if you were not like everybody else, then you were abnormal. If you were abnormal, then you were sick. Not being like everybody else, not being normal and being sick are, in fact, very different, but have been reduced to the same thing. So, that, so that's interesting. So you have this idea of, of normal. Uh, just having the idea as a concept is oppressing everyone, is the idea. Um, that, it, that there's this power uh, you know, trying to make you normal and there's, there's this resistance, this individuality you have that's resisting and that that's unavoidable. Um, the next quote here is, the individual is the product of power. We already read that one, but I wanted to put it in here again. So we're talking about this, this abnormal normal thing and then we, we can see this phrase, the individual is the product of power, that maybe that makes a little bit more sense now. Um, You know, and the idea that uh, that the individual identity that you have is because of all of the circumstances you find yourself in is being sort of pushed towards this whatever normal is this sort of middle ground. And that that, that's happening against your will, basically. He says it is not that the that the beautiful totality of the individual is amputated, repressed, altered by our social order. It is rather that the individual is carefully, carefully fabricated in it according to a whole technique of forces and bodies. So the, the technique of forces and bodies is the power dynamic that he's talking about. So this is a better way, I think, of explaining what he means when he says that the individual is uh, fabricated, he's, or, or the individual is a product of power. He says it's not like the like the individual is amputated by the social order. It's not like we're being forced into being normal and we were once some crazy, you know, chaotic pattern that's been trimmed down to this nice little, you know, perfect shape. It's not like that. It's rather that the individual is fabricated entirely. <laughs> the individual is carefully fabricated in it, in this power dynamic. So the whole, the whole idea of yourself as an individual is made up. Just like... The idea of normal is made up. That's what Foucault is telling you. The whole reason that you have an idea of of yourself as an individual is because our society and culture has has created the conditions that let you believe that, that have fabricated that idea. And once it exists, just like the idea of normal, hard to get rid of. So the individual was fake or false or ingenuine, due to the power dynamics he finds himself, you know, being born into, he finds himself in. The individual is ingenuine and fake. This is kind of the idea. And this is why novelty and bucking tradition is valued by Foucault. Because it's taken somehow as genuine. It's like something new, something just born, something that couldn't have existed before but now exists. That's something genuine, genuine that it's, un- it's an unencumbered form of being, that it's not constrained yet by power, you know, the power that works against your individuality. So that's what we're going to continue to see. It's interesting, but it's really hard to reconcile, this idea of the group versus the individual. Foucault says, discipline makes individuals. It is the specific technique of, a, of power that regards individuals both as objects and as instruments of its exercise. So it's discipline that makes individuals. Um, so Jordan Peterson would say something like, you are what you repeatedly do. So there's something there about discipline that, that matches up with what Jordan Peterson would say, that your, your individuality is formed by the things that you repeatedly do. That's true. You know, like you, That's the art, you are what you eat argument. But Foucault is implying that power dynamics are the discipline that molds you as an individual. It's the power dynamics that that are the discipline he's talking about so you are an individual only so that you can exercise power so that you can give power a form so that it can act through you that is quite the religious statement and one that I think Jordan Peterson would uh, would probably would probably agree with at least largely let me say that again so if if so if when Foucault talks about the discipline being the thing that makes the individual, he's talking about that as the power dynamic. Because everything's about the power dynamic. He so that's the discipline that makes you an individual. It's the back and forth between the power dynamic. So the fact that you're an individual is only the case. Like you have this idea of yourself as an individual. That exists because of the power dynamic. Why? Because you need an individual. To exert power on some on some other individual, it's like power doesn't just work all by itself. It's not this free-floating force out there that's just blowing against the other power ghosts. It's not like that. It has to be embodied in an individual. That's how power can can exist. It doesn't exist like fucking Slimer, like Slimer from <laughs> from Ghostbusters. It doesn't doesn't work that way, right? So. So what he's saying is that you are an individual only so that you can exercise power, so that you can, so that power can take form. So that power, so the power dynamic can, can be embodied and act in the world. All right. So the pause here, the silence that you're hearing from me is me putting two and two together here. If the power dynamic is the thing that gets embodied so that you can act out in the world this this power dynamic. That is very, very, very fucking close to the idea that Jordan brings up about the Logos. This religious idea that consciousness needs to be embodied so that it can act in the world. And that's what God is to Jordan Peterson. To me, anyway. And that's the way I read Jordan Peterson. So that God... Consciousness needs to be embodied so that it can act in the world, so that it can be conscious. And what Foucault is saying is that the power dynamic needs to be embodied so that it can act, so that it can be the power dynamic in the world. (laughs) I know it's muddy, but what I want to point out here is that Foucault describes the power dynamic in almost exactly the same way that Jordan Peterson and I describe God and consciousness. I think Jordan Peterson and Foucault would actually maybe have an interesting conversation here um, if, if Foucault were alive. This is interesting, but it also makes me think that Foucault is not so much of an atheist as he thinks, and this idea of a power dynamic, this disembodied, supernatural, driving force of culture and individual you know, uh, identity and, and, and experience, that is the thing I call God. That is the thing Foucault calls the power dynamic. So Foucault is not an atheist at all. He might think he is, but he is not. Now, I would, I would, I would definitely think he's mislead, uh, misled here in the idea that God is nothing but a driving force of power. But you can definitely see this, this synthesis, this balance between chaos and order that Jordan Peterson talks about in the image of the power dynamic. You can absolutely see that. All right, Foucault says, what strikes me is the fact that in our society, art has become something which is related only to objects and not to individuals or to life. But couldn't everyone's life become a work of art? Why should the lamp or the house be an art object, but not your life? And then there's a related quote here. He says, from the idea that the self is not given to us, I think there's only one practical consequence. We have to create ourselves as a work of art. All right, so when he says that the idea of the self is not given to us, what he means here is that the idea of the self is actually created or fabricated by the power dynamics. So we only, we, it's, been, it's, it's a fake thing that we've attached ourselves to somehow, this idea of a self. It's not real. But we find ourselves in, in, a, in a self anyway, so what should we do with that fact? We should create ourselves as a work of art. We should take this thing that, that was given to us, that we didn't have control over, this identity, this self, And we should make it our own by making it something else, something uniquely us. And that's what he means by living our lives like a work of art, considering ourself like a work of art. Something that we can change and transform in any way we want to make it something new and novel. And that's something that we have done. That's something genuine now. It's not part of the power dynamic. It's something that that has emerged from the power dynamic. Something like that. And I think Jordan Peterson would, would probably not have much to say on that. I think he, that largely, largely lines up. Then Foucault says, I don't feel that it is necessary to know exactly what I am. The main interest in life and work is to become someone else. And I think this is connected to what he said about living his life like a work of art and thinking that that's how we should treat our individuality, as a work of art, as something that we can change and morph it any way we want and you can see shadows of this philosophy in the in the political landscape today. You know, is your body something that is your work of art that you can create and morph and change in any way you want? Is that something like is that something like be, being born a man and wanting to become a woman, like the transgender debate today, let's say? Is that something like the transhumanist people who don't want to be a human so that they you know, cut their tongue so it looks like a lizard, and they put the, you know, they put green pigment in their skin, and all you know, all the scarification that people do to look, make themselves look like something else. They want to be something else. Isn't that what what you see here from Foucault? The main interest in life and work is to become someone else. He says. Remember, to Foucault, it's whether we're talking about society or whether we're talking about your own self, individual, in, in, individually. That the goal is to create something new, to create from yourself something new and novel. To create order from chaos. That's what Jordan Peterson would say. (laughs) Amazing. All right, so Foucault says, we must uncover our rituals for what they are, completely arbitrary things tied to our bourgeois way of life. It is good to transcend them in the manner of play, by means of games and irony, It is good to be dirty and bearded, to have long hair and to look like a girl when one is a boy, and vice versa. One must put in play, show up, transform, and reverse the systems which which quietly order us about. So you you, you couldn't really get a better insight into Foucault than this. When he says we have to uncover our rituals, these are our accepted standards, our unquestioned traditions. He said we have to figure out what they are. And he, he says that they're completely arbitrary, which, I mean, there's this first mistake right there. They aren't completely arbitrary. The things that are accepted standards and are unquestioned traditions have, have survived all this time and have been unquestioned all this time because they work, because they're necessary for us for one reason or another to help us navigate the world, you know, for whatever reason, they, they survive. It's not arbitrary that they survive. It's not arbitrary that people to this day continue to believe in God, even though science has transcended what, every single thing that, that, God, that, that, that God served historically. So there's a reason. It's not arbitrary. To dismiss it is to say that there isn't a reason. To dismiss it is to say it's not worth looking for the reason. It's not worth arguing the reason. That's the arrogance that we see in today's politics. And it, and it seems to go right back to Foucault. When he says, our rituals are completely arbitrary things tied to our bourgeois way of life. Come on, man. I mean, and again, you can see the Marxist language there. The Marxist language is there. He says, it is good to transcend them in a manner of play by means of games and irony. And if, come on, Games and irony is about, right, that about, that about in, uh, encapsulates my experience of watching the news today. Games and irony, that's about what it feels like. And then this idea, he says, it's good to be dirty and bearded and to have long hair and to look like a girl when you're a boy and to look like a boy when you're a girl. Why? Because what it does is it, it throws yourself up in the face of tradition as an example of something that's not going to comply and then you're going to see what happens when that when you throw that chaos into the system, when you throw that wrench into the gears. And any, anything that comes out of that will be new. And to Foucault, that means good. But that's not always the case. And that, I think, is strike number two for Foucault. Not necessarily for, for postmodernism, but for Foucault's brand of postmodernism. He says, He makes the constraints of power play spontaneously upon himself. He inscribed in himself the power relation in which he simultaneously plays both roles. He becomes the principal of his own subjugation. So that last sentence you might read, he becomes the master of his own slave. So this is just another example of this power dynamic Internally, this this unavoidable internal power dynamic. When he says the individual makes the constraints of power play spontaneously upon himself, he inscribes in himself the power relation which he simultaneously plays both roles. So within yourself, you're both sides of the power dynamic, the master and the slave. He says he becomes the principal, that's the master, of his own subjugation, of his own slavery that's that's all happening in the individual so power is imposed according to foucault even from oneself against oneself we are the slaves to the constraints we allow to be imposed on us whether that's socially politically interpersonally or even a blind respect for convention or tradition according to foucault so any of that stuff that we allow to hold us back or to constrain us is 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 allowing us to become a slave to ourself. We're the power that that's imposing power against ourself. Now he talks about that like it's a bad thing, and that it's 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 completely a bad thing in every respect. And then I have to go back in my mind to this example of. Uh, a little angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder. We all have found ourselves in those moral conundrums from time to time where we're asking ourselves to choose the good or, or the bad. And we have to make that determination for ourselves. Um, well, I was losing my train here, guys. Hold on. Um, oh, well, shoot. I guess what I, I, guess the point I was trying to make here is that if you've got an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and you're trying to make a decision. Following the path of the angel or the path of the devil doesn't make you a slave to the devil or a slave to the angel. See, you're the master who's making the decision one way or the other. And I think Foucault is kind of making the same point when he says that you're choosing, that too many people are choosing to be the slave instead of the master. We're going with the devil instead of the angel. Um... And, and I can't really disagree with that but i but I do disagree with the idea that that I'm putting myself in the position of the slave because I get to be the person who chooses so it's so again I, I know that that's kind of the same point that Foucault is making when he says that we make ourselves master and slave. I just don't know that i that that the I don't know that the logic flows the way he thinks it does, but it's just another good example of him painting this picture of how we sort of Enslave ourselves, and the power dynamic is unavoidable. It's even there in our own hearts. And God, guys, you have to see how this language sounds religious. You've got to see how this language sounds religious, that this philosophy sounds religious. And Foucault, it's funny, the way it looks to me now is that Foucault has put all of these religious impulses that he has under the constraints of this political lens. I'm smiling right now while I'm talking while I'm saying this. Foucault, the person who says that we shouldn't we should be tearing down all of the all of the lenses that we're looking through so that we can see the truth. We should tear down all these arbitrary walls and borders and constraints so that we can be perfectly free and and all these great things can can flow from us. And all of that stuff he views from the he views from the lens of a political and social being um, and I have to point out for Foucault's t- <clears throat> telling you and I that we shouldn't do that it's exactly what he's done he's, he's chosen to be the slave of this political lens <laughs> he's the master and slave both just like he said but he's chosen and maybe he doesn't see that to argue this completely from this socio-political lens and that sir Michelle is a constraint <laughs> That is a constraint that you've put yourself in. Interesting. All right, he says, there is no need for arms, physical violence, material constraints, just a gaze, an introspecting gaze, a gaze that each individual under its weight will end by internalizing to the point that they are their own overseer. Each individual thus exercising surveillance over and against themselves. So here he's talking about how power is exercised against yourself. And he said, look, there's not even really a need for arms and physical violence. Try telling that to the political activist today, by the way. Uh, he says, all that's needed is a gaze. He said, all that's needed is consciousness of the idea. Um, and what you will do is internalize that. And you'll become your own overseer. And this is, this is a word we, we, we already know. We, we call it conscious, you know? Conscience, like Jiminy fucking Cricket. We're our own overseer. Of course we are. And he's saying that that's all that that you need. And you can see that internal power dynamic there. Um, He says, thought, listen to this, thought cannot help but liberate or enslave. Even before prescribing, suggesting a future, saying what must be done, thought at the level of its existence is in itself an action, a perilous act. All right, so this is your eyes should be very wide right now. You should be you should be just waiting for me to read that again because you want to make sure you caught it. What the fuck did Foucault just say? He said thought cannot help but to liberate or enslave. A thought is dangerous, he says. A thought in itself is an action and a perilous action. So it's like a warning against thinking. So that should be an interesting thing coming from a postmodernist. That should be an interesting warning sign because he says that a thought will enslave or liberate. It's going to do one of, one of those two things or maybe both. And you can kind of understand what we mean because we talked earlier about ideas and the power of an idea, like the idea of a normal, how all you have to have is an idea and suddenly that idea has all kinds of power. And he, so I think what he's saying here is along those same lines. He's saying a thought... Can, in, can liberate or enslave. So be careful with what you think. It's like even before you put a thought into practice or into action, that even at the, at the level of its existence, the thought is a dangerous act. So there's all sorts of places we can go here. I, I agree that a thought is a dangerous act, that a thought is like a powerful potential thing that it can be put into action and it can demonstrate that power in, in, in the world. Uh, it, it, is, it is like that. It's also interesting to say that a thought is a dangerous and perilous act because it also reminds me of what we were saying earlier um, about ideas, that Foucault seems to think ideas are like the way Jordan Peterson thinks objective reality is or the way I think objective reality is, that it exists in this state of potential It's this undefined, infinite potential, this thing that I call God. And that's what ideas are. They're also just a phony facade, a word that that references this infinite pool of meaning and potential. And so any thought, any idea is a reference to that. Um, And that is dangerous. Just like we said with the idea, if I pull out a word, a concept... And I assume uh, that that this thing I I pull a little bit of this Terminator Two substance this this infinite potential and I attach it to this word that that is a dangerous act because I have this this thing that has infinite meaning and and, and I'm pretending that it means this this limited thing and reality it's that it's potential it's that Terminator Two substance it's you know behind it's that's our objective reality it's something way more powerful than we we think it is. it's more than it seems to be, as Jordan Peterson would say. a thought is more than it seems to be. <laughs> I just think that's very interesting and it corresponds to this mystic I- idea of uh, of of uh, being that um, that Jordan and I and Young and some others um, agree with. And here we are right from Foucault's mouth. All right, so we're winding down here. Let me read a couple more. He says. People know what they do. Frequently, they know why they do what they do. But what they don't know is what what they do does. Okay, so this is interesting. This is the idea of the individual's role in the group. Remember, to postmodernists, the group and to Foucault, the group is the important piece. Um, He's saying here that people often they know what they're doing and they knew they know why they're doing what they're doing. But what they don't know is what all of that stuff they're doing is actually doing. And the idea is they don't know what it's doing in the wider world. They don't know what it's doing to the group. They don't know what it's doing to, the, to our future prospects and what, what's going to happen. Um, you know, what, what limits we put our, on ourselves today are going to change the trajectory of the future. Something like that. It doesn't take much. You know, you can't, we're not going to let ourselves go any further right than this. We're not going to let ourselves go any further left than this. And you can just project that path on, on into the future. You can see how those limitations are going to change the trajectory of our path. So he, he, he's basically saying that we as individuals are going around, you know, living our lives, acting in the world. And what's happening is on a macro level, the group is doing something that we don't know. It's like the human species is, is progressing in a, in a certain direction. It's headed in a certain, to a certain goal, and we don't know what it is. We're acting it out in the world, but we don't know really what this broader, higher-level um, you know, trajectory is. It's like the cells in our body. They don't really know what we are doing in, in, at this level. They're just going around doing what a cell does, being conscious of that life of that existence, of that experience. They have no idea what the greater body is doing. And that's that's the analogy here, that there is a spiritual, religious connotation that gets put, placed on the group because the group is this, um, the individual is subordinate to this greater collective. You know? And it's something that has an identity and a will, remember? He called it a political will, all of, all in, of its own that we participate in but don't control. So this, this group, you can kind of imagine this group, whatever that is, we can abstract that and make it out like, like, a, like, like he said before, the power dynamic. So, so to Foucault, you have the group and the group is this supernatural creature made up of all the other individual things that are, that are just fabricated by, by the, 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 the the power dynamic anyway, right? Our individuality is fake composed by the power dynamic. The group is the, is the important bit that, you know, the, the group is the colony and we're the ants, that kind of a thing. And so you get this idea, this abstracted idea where the power dynamic really does start to look like God behind the scenes, I just can't help but point that out. And uh and again um I believe that 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 thing we're calling God is consciousness. Consciousness is where thoughts and ideas come from. And that's what Foucault is saying are are dangerous and powerful thoughts and ideas. Um all right, so this this whole this whole quote here about um people not knowing what they're doing or why they're doing it, um, but the group still kind of d- does its thing, that this quote presumes that the individuals are doing something something collectively, that they're acting as a single organism somehow, and that we're completely blind to that. You know, that's, that's the will of God. We don't know what that is, but his will be done, right? We don't know what that is. It also implies that the meaning of our existence and the value of our actions and accomplishments, they rest in our collective identity rather than our in, in our individual ones. All right, so Foucault says, Do you imagine that I would take so much trouble and make so much pleasure in writing if I were not preparing a labyrinth into which I can move my discourse, in which I can lose myself and appear at last to eyes that I will never have to meet? I am no doubt not the only one who writes in order to have no face. Do not ask who I am. Do not ask me to remain the same. Um I'm gonna read one more that goes along with this. He says, I don't write a book so that it will be the final word. I write a book so that other books are possible. So these are the last two that I wanna talk about as far as Foucault's conception of the self or the individual. Um, because these two pieces are really interesting to me. When he says, he says, look, do, do you know why I write? Do you know why I enjoy writing so much? He says, it's because I'm i I am preparing a labyrinth into which I can move my ideas. It's like I'm creating this space, this, this hypothetical academic thought space with my ideas in it. And this, every time someone picks up my book and reads my words, this is what's happening. They're going to be existing in this place that I've created that where people can, can tackle my ideas and engage with these ideas. And he says, in which I can lose myself and appear at last to eyes I will never have to meet. So he's talking about speaking to you through cross time. Foucault is dead. He's doing that right now through me, right? He says, I am no doubt the only, uh, not the only one who writes in order to have no face. So he doesn't want this to be um, his ideas, he doesn't want this, his ideas to be associated with him. He wants his ideas to participate in the political will. He wants to have no face. It's not about the individual. It's not about him. That's what he wants you to know. It's about his contribution to the political will. And everybody who's still living is participating in that political will. And every time you read Foucault, you know he's contributed to this, and he's given you this path uh, of critique and deconstruction to, to use to continue that work. He says, do not ask who I am. and Do not ask me to remain the same. So he doesn't, want to get, he doesn't want to get, even with his own words, remember, to Foucault, the meaning of words are always changing and disappearing. He doesn't even want his words to be the end-all, be-all. He doesn't want his words and his concepts and his ideas to remain static either. He doesn't want to remain the same. He wants people to pick up this torch and to take it and to make it become something else. He wants. To, he wants you to take postmodernism and make it the next thing. Maybe that's what I'm doing right now. I don't know. All right, here's a couple other bits that I want to talk about. He has this he talks about this desire to have no face. Uh, that reminds me of Game of Thrones, by the way. Um, for those of you who've seen that. Uh, his desire to have no face reminds me of the desire for an ego death. To have no face means to have no identity, to not, not to be an individual anymore. And to Foucault, because the group is more is, is the is the important unit. To have no face, to, to not be an individual, to sink into the collective and become the group. That's what he means. That seems to be what he means here. And that sounds like an ego death. It sounds like a mystic experience. It sounds like becoming one with the universe. Only to Foucault, it's to become one with the power dynamic, to become one with the political will. That's what he wants. That is a religious experience that Foucault is chasing, even though he doesn't know it. Isn't that amazing? God, man, does it, nobody ever noticed that before? His desire to have no face, to not exist that as, an, as an individual, to, but to become part of the collective? Foucault sees his ideas as a disembodied force of influence on the collective consciousness of society. He plays a role and influences what the collective will become, but in a way takes no credit. It's strange that he should think so when his faceless "Quote contribution to the collective can easily be seen as the pow- as a power that he is exerting for his own ends." So there was a little bit of a a little bit of a self contradiction there. Um, that Foucault wants to blend into the collective and be a part of this political will, but he still wants his ideas there. He wants to create this space for his his ideas to exist and to be to be encountered. Um, that seems to be a little different from bleeding in and becoming one with, with the universe becoming one with the power dynamic. All right. So this bit he says about, um, he writes books so that other books are possible. This, this, it just reminds me again of the idea of about creating the new or the novel that, that, that is to Foucault seems to be the goal of existence to plant the seed of something new to arise in others in the future. Um, That's the contribution that each of us uh, to the ideas that will emerge in the future. Excuse me. And the power those ideas hold over us. But but towards what exactly? Towards some new occurrence, some new reality. And it is the newness, it's the novelty of what might be that constitutes its desirability and its value according to Foucault. Now I think that's short-sighted. I think that I think that there's a lot of convergence here between what Jordan Peterson would say and what Foucault was saying about the new and the novel, about participating in the act of creation, about that being something that is a, it is a part of our essence as, as God, as the creator, as a conscious creature. That's what I would say. That's, that's the frame I would put it in, that that is good to see what, what new can be born, what, what more can be brought forth from the Logos, what more of this infinite potentiality can be made manifest, can be embodied in the world. That, I think, is the purpose of life in an existence, and it is a religious one, and it's lining up with what Foucault is saying. Um, I, I think that's interesting. I think that's very interesting. But I do think it's short-sighted for Foucault to think that something that is new is good. I don't know that that's always true. And he never seems to tackle that, that eventuality. All right, just a couple pieces on government because there's actually precious little that I think uh, goes directly to politics or government that comes out of Foucault's mouth, which I th- was a little bit surprised by. But I want to read you just just to wrap this up a couple of things that I did find. Uh, first, Firstly... He says a stupid despot may constrain his slaves with iron chains but a true po- politician binds them even more strongly by the chains of their own ideas on the so- on the soft fibers of the brain is founded the unshakable base of the soundest empires so this is interesting this is saying that this is saying that if you want to rule people, if you want to be a politician and rule the masses, if you want to embody the power dynamic and try to wield it for good, he's saying that the dumb person does it with slaves and iron chains, the the, the dumb person does it overtly so that everybody can see out in the open. He says a true politician binds them ever more strongly by the chains of their own ideas, So you make it sound like it's their idea. You make it sound like it's their identity. You help them to attach themselves to those ideas and you will be able to rule them without them even realizing it, something like that. So ideas are very powerful. They're that powerful to Foucault and he's not wrong. He's not wrong about that. All right, he says in this next quote, why am I so interested in politics? Ooh, that's a great question. I would like to know that the same, Foucault. Why are you so interested in politics? He says, but if I were to answer you very simply, I would say this. Why shouldn't I be interested? That is to say, what blindness, what deafness, what density of ideology would have to weigh me down to prevent me from being interested in what is probably the most crucial subject of our existence? That is to say, the society in which we live, the economic relations within which we function, and the system of power which defines the regular forms, permissions, and prohibitions of our conduct. All right, there, there's a little bit more to this, but hold the fucking horses, sir. I want to read this again, this last this sentence where he says, uh, he says, what blindness, deafness, denseness of ideology would weigh me down to prevent me from being interested in Quote: What is probably the most crucial subject of our existence? What is that? What is that crucial subject of our existence? He says the society in which we live, the economic relations in which we function, and the system of power that defines our conduct. Is that? Is that really the most crucial subject of our existence? How we live, what we're allowed to do during our time on Earth, what we what we permit from each other. I mean. And the, and the power that we exert against one another, that's the most crucial subject of our existence? I mean, Jesus Christ, ask somebody, ask somebody the, the meaning of their life, the most meaningful things in their life, the most meaningful concerns they have about their, about their existence. How, how much of those have to do with power struggles between individuals or groups? How much of that have to, has to do with questioning what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do? Very, very little, right? It has to do with our interactions with each other. It has to do with, you know, the satisfaction we have that we get from our from our day-to-day, you know, our individual goals and, and, and things like that. It has nothing to do, very, very precious little to do with society and and culture at the highest levels. And Foucault's saying that is that is the most crucial subject to our existence. I'm not so sure, man. Then he goes on to say this. The essence of our life consists, after all, of the political functioning of the society in which we find ourselves. What? The essence of our life? Do you think the essence of your life consists in the political functioning of the society that you live? I mean, fuck off, Foucault. You could, you could pick me up and drop me off in a completely, a completely other society. Or even better yet, you can pick me up and put me in on a desert island with no other human beings alive. There is no society. There's only me. There is nobody, you know, giving me permission or prohi- pro- uh, prohibiting what I can do. It's only me there, right? There's still There's still that power dynamic even within me that you described, but I'm on a desert island now. Is the essence of my life then the political functioning of the society I live in? I think my life still has quite quite an important essence, even all by myself on a desert island with no society or government. Thank you very much. That's the kind of short-sightedness that I'm talking about. That's the constraint that Foucault has placed himself under. That is the master to which Foucault is the slave. And he, he's been warning us not to do that this whole time. And this is what he's done. And it... <laughs> It reminds me again of, of Nietzsche, who's supposed to be such a big influence on Foucault. And Nietzsche said, Socrates is ugly to undermine all of Socrates' ideas about a world of forms where, where appearances don't matter. Here, here's what I'm I'm gonna be doing the same thing here. I'm gonna take a take a cue from Nietzsche and, and I'm gonna ask Foucault. Um again, he's not ugly exactly. Um not, not in the same way, not in the not the same critique as Socrates. But he is telling us to tear down the walls, to not listen to authority, to not to buck traditions, to find our individuality um, in those places we've been told not to go. <clears throat> and then he, he very neatly pushes all of that stuff into a little box, into this political and social box that, he, that he's operating within. And that's exactly what he told us not to do and i think it's what's keeping him from seeing his own religious impulses in his own philosophy like all of this stuff he's doing here he's doing to answer a question a religious question about his own instinct and he's so steeped and deep in this political and social you know web that he can't see he can't see the truth of it i just want to read this last line again the essence of our life consists, after all, of the political functioning of the society in which we find ourselves, and he says it like a matter of fact. Jesus, does anybody believe that? And what would it mean if it were true that we yearn for an identity greater than ourselves? I can go with that. That's a religious impulse. But is that the is that the entity, um, the society or government? Is that the entity that we want to merge into? Not a chance. Not a chance. Not a chance. All right, so he's got, he's got a couple a couple others here that are interesting along the same lines. He says this, the first task of the doctor is political. Let me say that again. And actually, you know, I, don't, I, I would shout out Dr. Fauci, but he knows this already. The first task of the doctor is political. The struggle against disease must begin with a war against bad government. Man will be totally and definitively cured only if he is first liberated. So Foucault has made even the practice of medicine political. What's the implication here? That, the, that what everybody's doing, what w- whether they know it or not, even in their professions, even in their interpersonal relationships, everything you're doing is a political struggle. It should be a political struggle. He also says... And the good ruler is precisely the one who exercises his power as it ought to be exercised. That is, simultaneously exercising his power over himself. And it is the power over oneself that thus regulates one power over others. Okay, this is one of those weird flip-flop moments that I keep pointing to where now the individual is coming into, into focus as the important is the important factor. No longer the group, no longer that desire to fade into the collective. Now he's saying that the good ruler is one who exercises power over himself. And it is that power that regulates his power over others. So I kind of like that idea. I think as a ruler, you should be master over your over your instincts and impulses, and to the extent possible, you should be rational and the master over yourself. You shouldn't be making rash decisions. You shouldn't be quick to anger. You sh- you know you should be contemplative, and and uh, you know uh, that that's all good qualities for a leader to have. You should have to be able to regulate power over yourself before you could be responsible for regulating, you know, the power dynamic over over. Society, absolutely. Think about the leaders in the world that you know about today. Think about the Justin Trudeau's, the, jo- the Joe Biden's, the you know the uh, Kim Jong Un's. Think about the the political leaders today. Do any of those people strike you as somebody that has that has power over themselves, that has themselves contained, that regulates themselves well? Those are the those are the leaders that Foucault's pointing to is bad. They need to, they need to have the ability of self control and self discipline. They need to be able to control the power dynamic within themselves to be trusted to to do anything similar to that. Um, you know, in, in, on the cultural level or the societal level. I'm not sure we have any leaders like that right now. Not sure. I'm, I I don't think Donald Trump is one of them either. Um, all right. Lastly, in this vein, he says. Because they claim to be concerned with the welfare of whole societies, governments arrogate to themselves the right to pass off as mere abstract profit or loss the human unhappiness that their decisions provoke or their negligence permits. It is a duty of an international citizenship to always bring the testimony of people suffering to the eyes and ears of governments, sufferings for which it's untrue that they are not responsible." The suffering of men must never be a mere silent residue of policy. It grounds an absolute right to stand up and speak to those who hold power. So there's things in this that I I like and things in this that I don't, and you probably feel the same way. You do think that people should be able to speak uh, critically to power. People should have a voice to speak up against the authority. That is important. And that's what that's what he says. It grounds an absolute right to stand up and speak to those who hold power. So I agree with that. Um, but there's some shit in here I do not agree with. Um, and you'll see how he lets it slip under the radar. Let me read this to you again. Um, he says that governments can pass off as as abstract profit or loss, the, their decisions uh, that provoke or their excuse me. Uh, okay, uh, excuse me. Uh, he's talking about human happiness. He's, let, me, let me just start over because this is a mess. Governments arrogate to themselves the right to pass off as mere abstract profit or loss. H- human unhappiness that their decisions provoke or their negligence, negligence permits. So let me just stop here and, and, and say this differently. What Foucault is saying is that human unhappiness is caused by the decisions of the government. And he says, the government just writes it off as abstract profit or loss, but that human unhappiness that their decisions provoke or their negligence permits. So either they did something that made us unhappy or it's something that they should have done and didn't do that's made us unhappy. Ultimately, it's the society or the government's fault that you as an individual are unhappy. Bullshit, Foucault. I'm going to say that. Then he goes on, he says, It is a duty of an international citizenship. And an international citizenship is a a lefty thing to say, but there it is. To always bring the testimony of people suffering to the eyes and ears of governments. Okay, fine. You know, there's like a... uh, um, well, you know, some sort of catastrophe, human rights violation going on in some other country. Yes, people should bring that to everyone's attention. It should be something that we, that you know, when, when there's something terrible happening, that the society at large, even the global society at large, should have something to say about. We can't sit idly by and let terrible shit happen. I get that, but he says sufferings for which it's untrue that they are not responsible. Let me read this whole sentence again. It is a duty of an international citizenship to always bring the testimony of people suffering to the eyes and ears of government, suffering for which it's untrue they are not responsible. So the end of that is yes, we definitely want to bring you know people suffering to light. We want to we want to resolve it where we can. We want to shame people where, where we can if they're doing something wrong. That that all makes sense that we have that impulse. But then he's saying that it's untrue. The government is not responsible for them. So again, he's saying it's not just about. Uh, you know, bringing to light tra- you know travesties of justice. It's also about holding the society and government responsible for them. Full stop. Doesn't matter what the suffering is; it's the government's fault. And he said we should never be silent about that. What do you think? Is it are things always the government's fault? Are they always society's fault? Is it systemic racism that's the problem? Is it the system that's doing it, or is it individuals? Is it individuals? So the achievement of our individual happiness is the role of government, apparently. WTF, that's what I have to say. And I made a little note here. Methinks they are, there are some holes in the f- foundation of Foucault's philosophical bedrock. Why would the individual be responsible for creating themselves and their lives as their own personal expression of art, as Foucault said? But the individual offloads their happiness and suffering to society. So it doesn't that sound like a fucking contradiction? It's my, it's my role... To use my individuality, to create something new. That's, that's something I can do as, a, as, a, as an expression of individuality. But if I'm unhappy or suffering, that's not something I have to do with. That's something I can just point fingers at, at at the at the society and the government. Hmm. Hmm. That's what I have to say to you, Foucault. Hmm. All right, here's my conclusion. Um there's a quote that I'll read in conclusion, two of them actually. Uh one of them says. As the archaeology of our thought easily shows, man is an invention of recent date and one perhaps nearing its end. So that sounds a little creepy. Man is, one, is, a, is an idea that's nearing its end. See, so he's not saying man as a species is nearing its end. He's saying man as an idea, as an invention, is, is nearing its end. And that should scare you. It's not an apocalypse, but what he's saying here is that the individual is a concept it's getting sucked into that black hole we talked about. That's an individual as a concept that's dangerous, whose meaning is, is, is beginning to fade, that it has to be removed and replaced by something better, something like the group that should scare you. Lastly, he says, curiosity evokes concern. It evokes the care one takes for what exists and could exist, a readiness to find strange and singular what surrounds us, a certain restlessness to break up our familiarities and to regard others the same. A casualness in regard to the traditional hierarchies of the importance and and the essential, of the important and the essential. I dream of a new age of curiosity. So this is good. I dream of a new age of curiosity. We have the technical means for it. The desire is there. The things to be known are infinite. The people who can employ themselves at this task exist. Why do we suffer from too little? from the channels that are too narrow, skimpy, quasi-monopolistic, insufficient. There is no point in adopting a protectionist attitude to prevent bad information from invading and suffocating the good. Rather, we must multiply the paths and the possibilities of comings and goings. So this is similar to what he said before. You know, he's saying like, I dream of a new age of curiosity where all these new things are going to be able to come into existence. Remember the novel, bringing in new things into being that have never existed before. That's the ultimate goal for Foucault. Um, and he says, there's no need to protect ourselves from the bad ideas, even though he, even though he made lots of arguments earlier about how powerful and risky ideas are. He says, there's no point in adopting a protectionist attitude to prevent bad information. What we should do instead is multiply the paths of comings and goings. He's like, what we should do is have new ideas. Uh, we should facilitate them. We should we should have all these new syntheses and you know cross cross paths with people that think differently. And we should you know we should create all this newness from that. And I ask you, in today's in today's postmodern culture, is that what we're doing? I mean, efforts to prevent bad information, that's what we see. We see deplatforming, the word misinformation, fact-checking everywhere. We're trying to shut down paths of coming and going, as, as Foucault would say. We're trying, to, we're trying to leave just one path. And here, they're, again, they're, they're George Washington, Michel Foucault. He's telling us that's not what we should be doing. So after reading Foucault, it seems to me that the communist and collectivist ideas that have become so tied to postmodernism and its influence in the political realm, there are a sort of bastardization of his philosophy. It reminds me of the turn the other cheek and love your enemy as yourself Christian who judges all of their acquaintances, friends, and strangers as harshly as possible, all the while holding themselves up as superior. That kind of bastardization. The same kind of thing we see with Muslim extremists uh, who pick and choose the passages from the Quran that justify their hatred and violence and ignore all of the others. That kind of bastardization. It seems to me that what Foucault wants more than anything is to fulfill our collective instinct to construct our identity and to construct the world around us. So Jordan Peterson spoke about this in Maps of Meaning through the works of Jean Piaget, who described our, our orienting reflex and how it allows us through lived experience to simultaneously construct our self and the, and the subjective world. We literally build up our perceptions of ourself and reality from the information we gain through experience. And reality gets more and more complex in concert with our own maturation. The world becomes more complex as we become more complex. Foucault wants to see just how much we can construct and just how complex we and the world can become if we put our collective minds to it. It's a noble and optimistic hope, but it's also naive and arrogant. It is noble in the sense that bringing something new into the world is noble, order from chaos, as Jordan would say. This is also a very obvious religious impulse to participate in the act of creation, to be as God is. It is noble to see just what we can create, like the reference Foucault makes to our individual lives as an expression of art. But it is naive in the presumption that bringing something new into the world is necessarily good, and that you can make that determination all by yourself. And then there's the emphasis on power, which isn't nearly as obvious and ubiquitous as Foucault presumes. But even if we go with him on this There is a contradiction in his philosophy that remains unreconciled and constitutes a critical flaw as far as I can see it. You see, Foucault puts the power dynamic within every individual, the oppression of his soul or consciousness over his body, and explains this as a self-generating process. It's it's what creates your identity, according to Foucault. So the power struggle within gives birth to the individual who then continues the power struggle with others, And just as the struggle within creates the individual, the struggle between individuals creates the collective. It is the collective that Foucault puts in the place of God and suggests that we should lose ourselves within it. In doing so, we lose our individuality, but we get to participate in something larger and more meaningful, the course of history or the fate of the universe, the political will or the power dynamic, as Foucault would say. But if the power dynamic is the generative force, the force that churns out individuals and moves within the collective, then why would Foucault wish to, tra- to track down and destroy it? Didn't he say that to bring the novel into being is our purpose, to make ourselves and the world forever new? So why, oh why, would you wish to destroy the power dynamic? If the power dynamic goes away, there is no more generative power. Nothing moves, nothing changes, nothing new ever emerges. Finally, I can just point out that the power dynamic, seen as a disembodied force that permeates reality and controls its development, is identical to the idea of God. You do see that, right? So to destroy the power dynamic is equivalent to the Nietzschean death of God. And Foucault was a student of Nietzsche. Didn't he understand the point that Nietzsche was making? If the modern proponents of postmodernism are the measure, I guess not.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know, it's not easy work